This is TK331, a Star Wars EU slash Legends podcast. I'm Crystal, a Star Wars enthusiast, but I've never read a thing I liked that I couldn't complain about a little bit. And I'm Thomas, a Star Wars completionist who has previously read the entirety of the EU. Today's different. Very different. Yeah. We're not talking about one book today. Nope. We are discussing three books. We are discussing the entirety of the Han Solo trilogy, The Paradise Snare, The Hut Gambit, and Rebel Dawn, all written by A.C. Crispin. They were published by Bento Spectra. The Paradise Snare came out in July 97, The Hut Gambit in September 97, and Rebel Dawn in March 98. And I know what you're thinking. This is going to be a six-hour podcast if Thomas and Crystal are going to talk about three books in one episode. But it's not. We're going to rein ourselves in. We have restrained ourselves in our notes. Yep. It's not every little detail. And by that, he means he has restrained himself in his notes because he's the one who does the notes. (laughs) Guilty. These are the only three Star Wars novels that A.C. Crispin wrote. She also wrote two short stories. Play It Again, Figrin Dan, the tale of Muftok and Kabe, which we, of course, talked about when we did Tales from the Most Isley Cantina. Oh, I liked that one. Yeah. And she also wrote Skin Deep, the Fat, the fat Dentist's Tale, and Tales from Jabba's Palace, which we'll be doing in the near future. The Han Solo trilogy was published fairly late in the Bantam Spectra era, with the Paradise Snare and Hut Gambit both coming out in the months leading up to Spectre of the Past, and Rebel Dawn coming out between Wraith Squadron and I, Jedi. The Han Solo trilogy tells Han Solo's story from his time as a young man right up to the beginning of A New Hope. We see what he did before he joined the Imperial Academy, his time as a smuggler, and even how he crossed paths with the Rebellion in its early days. We also meet the first love of his life, Bria Theron, who becomes one of the Rebellion's earliest heroes. It's been a number of years since you last read this trilogy. How are you feeling picking it back up again? I was interested to see how my perspective had possibly changed. I remember having a good time with these when I first read them. They weren't, like, exceptional or anything, but they were fun. I think you read them, not intentionally, but around the time Solo came out, if I remember correctly. Like, within a year or two of that. I can tell you exactly when. Yeah, I originally read The Paradise Snare in June 2018. So shortly after Solo came out. Because that came out in May 2018. So yeah, I was feeling fine about picking them up again not like out of my mind excited or anything but felt like it'd be fun to revisit them have you is this one of the ones that you've read a lot or because it was towards the end of the phantom specter publishing cycle did you not read them very much uh i've because i really love these three books i've read them quite a number of times that but yeah because i haven't read them much as rogues wraiths thrawn trilogy but as often as the hand of thrawn duology probably even more because these are much more readable but actually, one thing that's kind of weird about these books is whenever I'm reading the EU in order, I never actually read these three books in order because of how much time passes in this series. It's a mm-hmm. good deck. It's a solid decade, give or take. Yeah. There are numerous books that take place in between these. So it's very what I will usually do. Not even in between these books. It's just in the middle of that, too. One I'll get to that books. in a second. <laughs> like, I'll read The Paradise Snare, and then I'll go read The Lando Covers the Adventures. And then I'll return to the Hut Gamut, and then another Lando adventure. And I just kind of jump back and forth between several books. So it's very rare for me to read these books in consecutive order. And in fact, I still didn't do that because I read the first two books, and then Crimson Clank came out. So I read that, and then I returned to finish Rebel Dawn. So I still didn't read all three in order. But this is actually the first time in who knows how long where I read Rebel Dawn without taking a break in the middle of it. Because as you just alluded to, the Han Solo adventures take place during Rebel Dawn because of how much time that book covers. So I will usually get to that point in Rebel Dawn, put it down, and pick up the Han Solo adventure, read that, come back to Rebel Dawn, read the next chapter, 
get to the next break, put it down, go back, read the Han Solo adventure, and just <laughs> the look I'm getting, listener, <laughs> is one of what is wrong with you? It's just it just sounds so exhausting to me. And the reason why it's not is because I think AC Christmas she does a really good job of making things match with those older books from the late seventies, early eighties. So it does it feels like the story it's a continuation. So it doesn't feel like I'm it's so easy to p- know exactly when to put it down and pick it up because it, there's a very clearly marked points in the book. I'm, just, I'm not working to do it. As well, I know. I would just think that there would be a stark enough difference in terms of voice and style that it would be really jarring to transition between this and something else. There are differences, but I, that's just what I would do. So it was kind of a treat to read Rebel Dawn just straight through, because I've not done that in a very long time. Have you ever done it? Probably when I first read it, would be my guess. Okay. I'm not sure if I have since then. So, yeah, a good solid 25 years or so. Oh my god. 24 years. No, 25. 98. So yeah, about 25 years. Even if it's not work and it's clearly marked, I don't know. It's just something I can't really see myself doing. Would you, so you never want to, you'd never want to attempt that with Rebel Dawn? No, I mean, I can't confidently say I'll ever read Rebel Dawn again. Fair enough. Like, it's not it's not like basement tier or anything, but I, I really don't. I only reread things that are, like, life-changing for me at this point. Neither of us reread books as often as we used to when we were younger. No, because there's too many books to read. <laughs> and too many other things to do. Yeah. When we retire, maybe. Yeah. No, even then, I would just use my extra time to read more of the new books. Yeah. You know? So let's talk about the cover of Paradise Snare. What do you see on it? Well, for once, Han looks too old (laughs) instead of too young. (laughs) (laughs) They actually did make him look a little younger, I feel like, in this art. I think because it's so stylized. Like, it has a very, um, like, vintage-y, like, sepia-toned thing but he still looks i mean honestly he looks like indie just because of his outfit mm, yeah you're right like he's bit. not wearing the classic like han he doesn't have those yet outfit i mean he like a running theme in this series is that he never has clothes like he's always got like one set of clothes like a farmer from the 1700s that's what han is <laughs> anyway he's he's very central on the cover he's got a blaster he's looking just intriguingly off into the distance. Merg is here, also with a blaster, kind of behind Han and to the left. Our um, left, his right. Yep. And Bria is in the bottom right corner of the cover, also with a blaster. Everybody's got a blaster. It's there, a violent book. <laughs> there are some ships in the background, some like Imperial shuttles, and a ship that... I feel like that must be the one that Han primarily pilots while he's on Elysia. Yeah, I can believe it. And then on the spine, you've got Han in his classic costume. <laughs> A new hope with a deep V-neck. Yeah, the V-neck is not as deep on the cover as it is on the spine. <laughs> and, of course, because this is the 90s, there is a tagline. What does it say? On the cover, it's small and in the bottom left corner, so I can almost be more forgiving of it. Before the legends, dot, dot, dot. Before the triumphs, dot, dot, dot. A young man's quest begins, exclamation point. I mean, that's actually pretty accurate. Yeah, I also find it very appropriate that they included so many ellipses (laughs) just on the cover because, oh my God, 
AC Crispin loves an ellipsis the way that I love a double dash, and somebody <laughs> should have reined her in. And somebody should have reined you in. My editors do that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> I always know that if I don't do a pass of a rough draft before I hand it to writer's group, the first thing they're going to say to me is, too many double dashes. Do it again. <laughs> it's just like, everybody has their, like, uh, when you're writing fast, when you're writing a first draft, etc., everybody has their little ticks, you know? And I just feel like the humble ellipsis is one of hers. Whereas the Roland sentence would be one of mine. The what? The Roland sentence would be one of mine. Yeah. And the lack of commas and the lack of semicolons and colons and just punctuation. Well, all of those things go back to it's a run-on sentence. <laughs> because you have not structured it in a way that would be comma or semicolon friendly. Or friendly to anything but a string of clauses held together by buts, ands, and thens, like spit and tape. And ors. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I see a sentence and I'm like, I just feel like he didn't reread this before he sent it to me. <laughs> that thing is, I probably did. You didn't reread it with an eye for, what is Crystal going to tell me about this? Like, that's what I do with writer's group. I mm. reread my stuff and I think, now, what are they going to say about this? Okay. Especially in terms of structure. And that informs my own self-editing and self-restraint, which you could use. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, on to the book. So, beginning with Paradise Snare. Of course, we should also mention, this is in the timeline when the Clone Wars happened much earlier than a they do billion years with ago. the prequel trilogy. So there are details that, just like the Hand of Thrawn duology, will not match up with the prequel era. And that's fine. But just know that going in, listener. An ancient troop ship named the Traitor's Luck is above Corellia. It's a relic of the Clone Wars and holds up to 100 people. Garrus Shrike is in charge. Shrike is told the lock sensor on the weapons cache flickered for a moment, and he knows there's a thief aboard. The ship is scanned, and it's the Solo Kid. Han goes to say goodbye to Dulana, the Wookiee chef, and his only friend on board. He tells her he's leaving and going to Elysia. They've advertised that they need a pilot. They hug, but are interrupted by Shrike showing up with others. A fight breaks out. Dulana saves Han's life, but is mortally wounded. Han runs and sneaks aboard a robot freighter heading for Elysia. As the ship leaves, Han promises he can, that if he can ever help a Wookiee, he'll do it. No hesitation, no questions asked, and... Of course, knowing what we know about Han and the original trilogy, we know what is coming in the future. We know which Wookiee it will be. And I, I deeply actually love this detail, how, that, how this connects to his childhood, where he came from. Mm -hmm. I've always really liked that. During the flight, he thinks about his life on the Trader's Luck. He was trained to be a thief and a con artist. The only one who ever cared for him was Dulana. When he was 11, she learned his last name was Solo. He looked the name up and discovered that he had an aunt named Tion Sal Solo and a cousin, Thracken Sal Solo. We remember good old Thracken. Thracken. When Han had the chance, he ran away and went to the Sal Solo estate because they are filthy rich. He and Thracken are both amazed at how similar they look. There's no doubt that they are related. Han is taken to meet his aunt. He hopes she'll know about his past, but she sees Han and says that's not possible and just starts weeping and screaming. Han stayed with Thracken for six weeks. Thracken was horrible to him the entire time. He was vindictive and mean, and he would torture insects and animals just to disturb Han. This fits, in, I think, pretty well with the Thracken we saw in the Krillian trilogy. Yeah. Eventually, Han fought back and won, and forced Thracken to tell him about his past. 
Their grandparents had twins. One was a girl, his aunt, Tion. The other was a boy, but the town they lived in was attacked, and their grandparents got split up. The boy went with the grandpa, while Tion went with the grandma. The boy wasn't even named when the attack happened. The grandpa and the boy just vanished and were never seen again. That child must have been Han's dad. Thraken then surprises Han and locks him in a storeroom for three days. When Thraken eventually opens it, Shrike is waiting for Han. Two pieces of a pot, these two. Mm-hmm. The ship arrives at Elysia. Because Han had changed the ship's course to get here faster, he has to manually land it. And he's never landed anything this big before, and there's a huge storm to deal with. So he lands in a partial crash and gets outside just before running out of air. Because this is a robot ship, there was no atmosphere, he's been wearing a suit this entire time. And uh, the air available to him in said suit was pretty limited. When Han eventually wakes up, there's an ugly alien looking at him. He's in an infirmary. The ID he was carrying reads Vic Drago. So that's what they think. That's who they think he is. The alien asks if he's a pilgrim, and he says no, he's here to be a pilot. The alien introduces himself as Teroenza, the most exalted high priest of Elysia. He's impressed by how Vic got here and offers him the job. And after some haggling, Han accepts. He's then introduced to Veritil, a sacerdot or underpriest. He learns there are currently three colonies on Elysia. The most recent one was established the previous winter. Colony one has been here for five years. Veritil says they are Talanda Till and are distant cousins of the Huts. No wonder they're so ugly. <laughs> Han is given a tour and shown where the spice factories are. They get raw spice from Kessel, Ryloth, and Nalhada, and it's then processed and refined by the pilgrims in the factories. Han sees the pilgrims leaving the factory after their shift ends, and is told that they are here to serve the oneness of the all and have chosen this life. Han quickly picks up on the scam, but says nothing. Pilgrims come here for a religious sanctuary and end up working in spice factories. Han is shown the altar of promises and watches the religious ceremony. He quickly grows bored but then a vibration fills the air and the pilgrims writhe and moan in happiness and pleasure. Han realizes this is why the pilgrims stay and work, so that they can feel like this. Yuck. Ugh. Han is then introduced to Murg, a Togarian, a giant cat-like species. The species has a reputation for honesty and loyalty, and Murg will be Han's bodyguard. He will go everywhere that Han goes, or actually Vic, as of course Murg thinks of him. Han knows that Murg is really here to keep an eye on him and make sure he doesn't run off on his own or steal any spice, or steal a ship, or just do anything nefarious. During the tour, Han caught a glimpse of a hut, and Murg confirms that some are here. Murg is here looking for his lost love, Morav. If he can find her, they will mate for life. She wanted to see the galaxy, but never came home, so now he's looking for her. Her trail went cold, and he ended up here. He needed money to continue his search, which is how he became Han's bodyguard. Han is eventually given a tour of the spice factory itself, and is given infrared goggles because before going down into it. No visible light is permitted below the ground floor. Light will activate the spice, making it unusable after. Han asks if it's a mineral, and is told they aren't sure how it's formed. Some think it's organic. Much of it comes from deep on Kessel. And of course, this ties nicely into the Jedi Academy trilogy with the spice spiders, because they had no idea before that where it came from. So they can't, and I appreciate that detail. Han watches a woman work and is impressed by her speed. She cuts herself and mutters something under her breath. Han recognizes a Corellian accent. He goes over to help and says she should go to the infirmary, but she says it happens all the time. Besides, if she goes to the infirmary, she'll miss the exaltation. Han asks her name and is told Pilgrim 921. Later, Pilgrim 921 thinks about Vic. Meeting him made her think about home. 
She's not sure how long she's been here or even how old she is now. It could be months, it could be years. But after thinking about it for a little while, she realizes it's been months and not years. Han flies between the colonies, getting used to the shuttles and the planet. And he's called in to see Taroenza. On his way to see the high priest, Han walks through a display room. It's filled with a collection of rare antiques that must be worth a fortune. Han is told he's going to start interstellar flights soon and will be heading to Nalhada. He's also told to train Merg as a gunner, just in case. Han goes to the Pilgrim Dining area and finds Pilgrim 921, who's exactly who he was hoping to see. He's got a, a little crush. Chris will shake your head at this. Yep. He goes up to her and she says they're supposed to talk. He's not one of the one. But Han being Han, he's stubborn. He stays. He talks to her. He asks what she's good at. And eventually she says that she was going to be an archaeologist before coming here and was a former museum curator. She tells him he's not good for her spiritual essence. Han's not good for anybody's spiritual essence. Truth. Han and Merg fly several successful trips, but are eventually attacked. They're able to fight it off, but Merg is hurt. Han heads for the nearest planet to get medical help, which happens to be Alderaan. Upon arrival, the introvid says there's almost no crime, but Han doesn't believe it. There's crime on every planet. Come on now. He lands and gets medical treatment from Merg. He then decides, you know what? I've got the spice. I can just hit the pirate stole it. I'm going to offload it while I'm here, while Merg is, you know, in a back-to-tank. And keep some money for myself. Han keeps trying to offload it, but isn't able to. Eventually, a member of the Alderanian Internal Security Force approaches him and tells him to not do anything. Han realizes they've been watching him, and the intro video wasn't really lying. He decides that he's not going to try to sell the spice, because he's so, been noticed. Is the planet really that peaceful, or is there a secret police force enforcing these rules, making it that peaceful? Uh, you decide. Seems like the second one, no? <laughs> Feels a little bit like that? Seems like a surveillance state. <laughs> it also might just be the type of ship he came on and how he came on was very suspicious, which is why they're watching him specifically. It's not like this to everyone. Well, and he was like wandering around asking, kind of telling questions. And... Yeah. He's not the smoothest operator ever, but especially at this point because he's so much younger. Yeah. Han checks in on Merg and he's surprised to see Han. He thought he'd been dumped and that Vic would run off with the spice. When they get back to Elysia, they're told they've lost two other ships to pirate activity over the years. Han finally gets a chance to meet Jalus Nebel, the other pilot here. He's a Celestin and has been ill since before Han got here. He had a nervous breakdown and his hands won't stop trembling, so that's not good for piloting. No. Hauling Glitterstim has made him sick. The spice is what caused the tremors. Nebel says he suspects other Hut clans are behind the pirate attacks. Jabba and Jiliak ship raw spice here. And he thinks they're the ones hijacking the processed spice to increase their profits. That way, you know, they ship spice here, and then when it leaves, they want to pay for it. Nebel says spice isn't the only thing going on here. There are also slaves. Once the pilgrims are trade and compliant, they are sold off, usually after about a year. Han is immediately worried about Pilgrim 921, even though he doesn't know her and has no reason to worry about her. Pretty face. When he... To clarify, when he first saw her, he did not see her face. No, he did not, because she, she had the goggles on, kind of bulky, heavy clothing. Yeah. Just he had a, he felt a connection to her. I, I think it was the Karelian accent that really was the first thing that drew him, because it was a connection to home for both of them. But, like, was Karelia really home for Han? That's where he's from. He didn't have, like, a family. <laughs> no, but doesn't mean he doesn't want one. Han tries to convince himself to forget about her and focus on the money, but he's just not able to. Later, he finds her and tells her that he cares about her. And she's distressed by everything Han is saying, but she does tell him that her name is Bria Theron. 
Han goes to see Terowenza and says he has a solution to his problem. One of the pilgrims is a former museum curator and can organize his collection for him. Han also asks about the exaltation. The exaltation is produced by male Talanda Till. It's usually used to attract females during the mating season. Yeah. The pilgrims' diet is designed to make them more susceptible to it. When they first come here, the pilgrims are looking for guidance, and they are given it. Han thinks this is worse than any of Shrike's schemes, and someone should really shut this place down. Then Zaval the Hut arrives, and Han meets his first hut. Han had recorded the conversation with Terowenza for reasons. Merrick still guards Han, but doesn't shadow him 24-7. There's a lot more trust after what happened with Alderaan. Bria is given the job of cataloging and maintaining Terowenza's collection because before she came on, it was kind of a mess in there. And Terowenza was always like, man, I just I would love to know exactly what I have and how much it's worth, but just kind of all sitting on shelves, unorganized. And over the next few months, she gets much healthier as she's, you know, out in the sun, not in just pitch darkness for most of the day. Like, she, she's doing better. She just wishes, though, that Han was a pilgrim, too, so they could really be together. Once she's feeling better and healthier, Han plays the recording for her. Bria is mad at Han and thinks he's somehow faked the recording. But to prove the truth, he gives her a vial of glitter stem. When she takes it, it will grant her temporary telepathic abilities. Spice is wild, yo. Yeah. Like, are you sure it's going to grant you temporary telepathic abilities, or are you just tripping? (laughs) Just imagining what the people around you are thinking. She takes the vial, but doesn't use it. She needs time to think. Bria goes to the exaltation and takes the spice there. She reads Tarot in his mind, and he clearly doesn't believe in the one and the all. He's, in fact, proud of himself for inventing this religion and creating all these future slaves. Bria goes back to Han and feels betrayed. Han tells her they'll leave together. They'll steal from the collection so they have some money. He's not sure what to do about Merg yet, though. Han tells Bria about Merg's search for Mrav. She says there was another Tagorian here. She saw it six or eight months ago, and it was white with orange stripes. Merg is watching them and only hears some of what's said, unfortunately. He knows they plan to leave, and that Pilot, which is how he thinks of Han slash Vic, will take care of him. The next day, Merg attacks, but can't bring himself to kill his friend, so he decides to take Vic to Terowenza instead. Han asks what happens if Merg has made an agreement with someone who lied to him. Merg says then his agreement would be void. Han swears on Bria's life that Morav was here. Bria saw a Togorian about six months ago. Han gives a description, and Merg knows that Han is telling the truth, so he's ready to kill the priests right now, and Han talks him down. There's a lot of just Han talking other aliens down from just going on murderous rampage yeah. in his life. <laughs> no, 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 not yet. <laughs> Han and Nebel are going to Nalhada soon. While they're gone, Han tells Merg to ask for some time off to go hunting. And while hunting, he can go to Colony 2 and see if Marav is there or not. If she is, Han tells him, don't rescue her yet. They'll rescue her together when Han makes a break for it after getting back. Because if Murr grabs Marav, then they're stuck on the planet together. No way out. Han and Nebel go to Jiliak. They bring a message and gifts. In the message, Zaval says he knows Jiliak is behind the pirate attacks. He tells Jiliak to stop them or else and to accept the gifts as a peace offering. Jiliak is not happy and says Zaval is a dead hut. One of the I find more interesting aspects of the series is there's a, we get into a lot of a lot of hut politics. Yeah, a lot of hut politics, a lot of hut culture, and I am here for it, weirdly enough. I don't know about culture. 
I, I would say we learn a lot about their culture. I guess. It just seems like it's lacking in culture to me, <laughs> but they certainly have a lot of politics. <laughs> Merg gets to calling it to and smells Marov there. He then goes to the Exaltation, where it's hiding, and sees her there. And he can also tell that she's faking it. She has not become a true pilgrim. He also sees that she has a blue sash on, which means she'll be taken off-world as a slave soon. Han and Nebel arrive back on Elysia, and Merg tells Han they have to leave tonight. Han takes out the comms and then goes to get Bria. While Bria and Merg loot the collection, an alarm goes off. The group fights their way out, and Zaval dies in the process. They take the Talisman, Tarawenza's personal ship, as part of their escape. As they fly to Colony 2, Han tells Bria and Merg that, you know, my name is actually not Vic, don't call me that. My name is Han. And they're like, that's kind of weird, but okay. That's sketch. <laughs> they get to the colony, and Merg shows himself some Rob knows to come. And she gets on, mo- on board, but Merg is shot. It's serious, but he will live. Mrav calls him the greatest hunter of their people for tracking her down. With Merg out, Mrav takes the weapons. She's a better shot anyway, because apparently the females are more technologically advanced in their society than the males. Yeah, basically, the males are more known for their physical hunting prowess, whereas the females are much more technologically advanced. Yeah. it's a, I kind of like that dichotomy. Yeah, it's, it's much interesting. more interesting than the usual hunter-gatherer type thing we see in stories. Yeah. They are being shot at, but Han realizes it's just Nebel and his shots are just missing. But there's a Corvette in space and it catches them in a tractor beam. Nebel flies between the two ships, freeing the talisman, and both ships jump to hyperspace. So I think at this point, you kind of thought the book was about to end. Like, they do this grand escape from the Except that there's so much, so right. many pages left. And I was like, oh. You, you were very confused. Yeah. Not very confused. That actually reminds me of, you've never seen this movie, I'm 99% sure. Have you ever seen Heat? No. Didn't think so. I'm not saying this is good or even like Heat, but there's um Heat is well known. There's a there's a this grand climactic fight in the streets of Heat, right? But it comes like two thirds of the way into the movie, and then there's a lot of movie after. And this kind of reminds me of that kind of pacing. Like the big action set piece happens much earlier in the story than you expect it to, and then there's still a lot more story to play out. Yeah. And I kind of like when a story does that because it's I don't want to call it unique, of course, but it's not common. And I, I just like it when things change it up a little bit. I think it's fine as long as you've laid the appropriate groundwork for the stuff that you're going to do after the big action set piece. Which Agreed. I don't feel happened here. No? No. Okay. They head to Tagoria, but Bria is really struggling with the withdrawal from the exaltation. Upon arrival, Han and Bria are invited to stay for the wedding, and they accept. After a few days, Bria is doing better, but still struggling. Merg and Mrav get married and go off on their honeymoon. After that, Han has a surprise for Bria. He takes her to the beach, and Bria teaches him to swim. He tells her of his past and his dream of going to the Imperial Academy. They kiss, and then don't speak for a long time. Afterward, they hit for Corellia. Han struggles to say I love you, but Bria says I love you too before he can even say it. Bria is still struggling with withdrawal. She'd wanted a life with a purpose and to make the universe a better place, and she thought she had found it. Han is more pragmatic about life. Yeah, that tracks. They go to sell the ship, but are only offered 5,000 credits for it. Han takes the money since he knows the huts are looking for it, and they just need to get away from it as soon as possible. Because not only did they escape from Elysia, a hut died. That's bad. That's bad news bears. Bria calls her family. Her mom, Sarah, almost faints at seeing her and then yells at her. That tracks. Her father, Ren, comes to pick them up. He thanks Han for rescuing Bria. They are brought to Bria's home, and it's a huge estate. Bria had not told Han that she came from such a wealthy family. 
and he's a little bit nervous about how this is going to play out. Fair. Han meets Bria's mother and brother. His name is Pavic, and he just kind of gets a bad feeling from the two of them. Like, he likes Ren. He does not like these two. And he clearly doesn't fit in here. And when they ask who he is, he's like, you know, I'm an orphan. But Pavic's like, I've, I've seen you before. I don't know where I've seen you before. And Han realizes it must be from one of Shrike's schemes. He's like, oh, please don't recognize me. Please don't recognize yeah, please me. please don't remember. Bria and her mom talk privately. She asks Bria how involved Bria is with Han. Bria says they love each other. Marriage hasn't come up yet, but likely will. Girl. I actually appreciate that. Girl, how, stop. How she says this. Like, it hasn't come up yet. It probably will at some point. But right now, it hasn't. It's too early. Bria knows her mom doesn't want her to stay with Han. The next day, Han goes to sell the items they took from Terowenza. He sells most of them, but keeps a few in reserve in case they need fast cash in the future. He deposits the money into an imperial bank account that he just opened and heads back to Bria. Dale Lever is visiting and instantly recognizes Han as Talus Byrne, a swoop racing champion. Bria's mom is incredibly upset, but Bria defends Han. Pavic is convinced Han will try to rob them and goes to call security. Ren enters and forbids it. He says Han saved Bria. He risked his life for her. Han reminds Ren of himself at that age. <laughs> he deserves a chance, not a jail cell. Bria hugs her dad. Just want to talk about the Theron family for a second. Yeah. I love Ren. He's great. Yeah. The other two, though? Oh, my God. Garbage. Yeah, absolute trash. Her mom sucks. I kind of thought you would have that reaction. I mean, her mom is just so, like, you know, she's that very, like, image-focused. What will the neighbors think? What we're all, will our social circles think? Um, this guy, Dale, is actually Bria's, like, ex-fiance who her mother set her up with because, you know... That's what you do when you're that rich. Everybody in the upper class is super incestuous and they have to, like, all be involved with each other. <sighs> yeah. I was like, why did you guys bother go going? Like, sometimes Bria does things that make me think this woman is not smart. I think for her right now, it's more, she doesn't know, she's rudderless and doesn't know what to do. Like, she thought she'd found that purpose. And since she doesn't, since she lost it, she's kind of at loose ends. And what some people do, whether it's a good or bad thing, when they lose that purpose or idea of what they have to do, they will return home at least for a little while. So this it feels very true to what people do all the time. Yes and no. I just... Bria is old enough that she should have thought more deeply about her family dynamic at this point and at least given Han a heads up about what they were walking into. That to me is the, her big mistake was not telling Han what she comes from. Yeah. I, I think that was her mistake here more than anything else. I mean, I think it's all a mistake, but... Well, yes, but to me, that was the mistake that could have been avoided. The other, the rest of it, I feel like, makes a lot of sense to me. Okay. There, it's the mistake that should have been avoided. How's that? Sure. But what's different about that than what you were saying before? I said could rather than should. Yeah. That night, Bri and Han sneak out. She doesn't trust her brother to not call security on Han. Han promises to tell her all of his schemes so that he was in, so there are no more surprises. So they both could have been a little more honest to make things better. But I think if he had known what he was walking into, he would have told her, I did some things I might be recognized. But since he's not thinking she's from, you know, the elite 1%, there's no reason that anything would happen. Yeah. They head to Coruscant next. Han sets up a contingency plan. If something goes wrong, they will meet at the Glow Spider, where Nikki the Specialist is. Han heads to the bank to withdraw the money. But his account's been frozen, 
by one Inspector Hal Horn. Oh, and Hal Horn. This made me so happy. <laughs> Just so ridiculously happy. Like it, it's the I've said this many times. It's these little connections that I love about the Star Wars universe that make it just feel more lived and more connected. And like, we don't ever see Hal. We just hear his name, I think once, maybe twice in this book. But just we, we know exactly what has happened, who has done this, because we know who Corrin is. We've read the X-Wing books. Like, I, I just love this connection. Yeah, it's fun. The funds are suspected of being illegally accrued. That is correct. So Hal is told to wait for an Imperial security force. So he takes the big manager hostage and runs. <laughs> Han goes deep into the planet to escape, over 1,200 stories down. After several hours, he heads for the glow spider and finds Bria. They find a cheap room, and Han tells her what happened. He thinks they need to leave the planet. Somewhere on the outer rim, he can get a piloting job, and they can get married. But Bria won't let him give up on his dreams. She gets up early the next day, and she's realized that Han might not achieve his dream if they stay together. So, she's leaving. She calls her father, and he sends her some money. He also tells her, don't come home. Not in a mean way, just in a, your mother and brother are doing Impossible. insane things and you won't be safe here. Yeah. And I, th- this is why I like him so much because he, he loves his daughter so much. He wants the best for her. He wants to see her, but he knows that is not the best thing for her. And he's willing to sacrifice that. Not enough to leave the wife and the son though. True. But that's. Loves her, but not enough. Yeah. Han wakes up to find a note from Bria. In it, she says she needs to stop taking his strength to fight her addiction. She'll be free someday, and hopefully they can be together again then. For now, she wants him to use the money to get into the academy, and she says she'll love him forever. Han is hurt, but also worried that she'll go back to Elysia. He decides from now on, it's just him. No friends, no lovers, just solo. Sure, Han. Yeah. Dramatic. A week later, his retinal patterns have been changed by Nikki the Specialist, and he applies to the Imperial Academy as Han Solo. His record and his past are clean. He excels at the flying tests, but struggles with the written tests. He does set a speed record by flying through Emperor Palpatine's Arch of Triumph instead of over it. (laughs) In the end, he makes it. And he thanks, Bria, I made it. I sure wish you were here to share this with me, sweetheart. I love that he flies through the arch and scares people rather than over it like he was supposed to. Yeah. And the guy who's, like, judging the test is like, eh, Imperial citizens could use a good scare. (laughs) (laughs) After celebrating, someone pulls a blaster on him. It's Shrike. He is the only one who knew that Vic Drago was really Han Solo. They fight, and Han eventually gets the blaster from him. But someone else shoots Shrike. It's a bounty hunter. The bounty hunter knew Shrike would find Han, so he followed him. Because there's a big reward out for the man who killed a hut. Eventually, Han is able to fight back and ends up killing the bounty hunter. He then exchanges clothes with him and puts all of his fake IDs on this guy. He blasts the bounty hunter's face off and pushes him off of a building. That should get people off of his back. It's a good idea. Han is with the other new cadets about to start at the academy. Most have families, but Han has no one. He looks for Bria, but doesn't see her. He also thinks about Dulana. He marches onto the ship and thinks his real life is about to begin, and he doesn't look back. Ending. The Paradise Snare. So what would you think of this book? So overall, I like the story. I like Han's escape, his attempt at gainful employment. There is this funny thread that goes on for a while about how he kind of thinks of this piloting gig as legitimate, even though it's literally running spice. (laughs) But compared to what he was doing with Shrike, it feels legitimate. Significantly. And his plan to, like, make good. Like, overall, I liked those threads 
of this story. It, it feels very true to his character. Yeah. A lot of my problems actually come from the first hundred pages of when the he's, book. So most of that time is when he's on the robot ship. He's just thinking to his younger days, his childhood with Shrike. Yeah. I also think it was a mistake to open with Garrus Shrike as the POV character. His presence is barely felt in the rest of the book. Like Han does not think about him while he's on Elysia pretty much at all. So this is a really missed opportunity to have a strong Han point of view opening. Seeing him take the weapons and go to Delana. Like, it's his book. Why are we opening with this character who ultimately doesn't matter? Is that the only time we... It's No, there's a couple things from Merg. Yes. But most of it is Han's And there's some stuff from Bria. Yeah. Very but l- it's largely Han POV. 80%? Yeah. Give or take? And then the flashbacks, while interesting, are too many and too close together for me. Because like, they're all the beginning on the ship again. Yeah. Subjectively... I just do not care for flashbacks. Like, this is a hill that I will die on. I just don't like them. So I'd prefer to dump them entirely and have the core content from them come up during present day while he's talking with Bria and Merg. Telling them about what happened. Yeah. Or at least space them out throughout the book, like, as something relevant to a particular flashback happens. Then you can put it in there. But, like, I just How lost would do it, basically? Yeah. I don't think flashbacks work in this medium. I think they are much easier to fit in to a TV show or a movie. I still don't like them there because I feel that it's a cheap shortcut to tell you why something that's currently happening to a character should matter to you when you didn't bother to establish that from the start. So it feels like you forgot and now you have to go back and anyway, I don't like flashbacks. That's uh... that's fair, but I, there's a reason we only mentioned the Shri- the um, the Sal Solo flashback because that's such an important one. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot more than just that, of course. And there's actually another flashback I did want to touch on. We didn't talk about, but in one of the flashbacks, so back in the Thrawn trilogy, Garn Bliss recognizes Han and knew who he was from a school he w- was talking at. And we actually get to see that flashback. I, I I've always liked that little tie-in mm-hmm. because it explains like when you know more about Han's past, it's like how in the heck was he in a position to meet Garm? And this book explains because it. he was doing a con. Yeah, and I I, I, I liked that. I, I like a lot of the flashbacks, but I agree. I do wish they were a little more spread out throughout the story. I think it would have been better. He also learned from the flashbacks that like Han first came to be under Shrike's employ when he was like five years old. He was a street urchin before that, etc. Yeah. And then the other big thing that happens in these initial hundred pages is Bria and Han meet, mm-hmm. and for me, their connection is too instantaneous. It happens in the dark, where there's no way to form an attraction. Her body and face is not visible. And honestly, he's not really visible either, just because of the situation that they're in. I really wish the author had leaned harder on Han feeling a connection to Bria, because she is kind of a slave being taken advantage of, like he was under Shrike. And play that into, like, he recognizes the Corellian accent. He feels a kinship with her because of their shared familiar homeland. Their Shared their, trauma. Shared trauma. They're similarly being taken advantage of. Like, replace, if we're going back to my thing about flashbacks, throw all of those out and use the space on the page to do this instead so their connection actually feels real. Because to me, it doesn't feel real. Okay. Like, it's... It's, it's, I understand that the ages that they're at, they're like 18, 19. Yeah. But by the time I was 18 or 19, 
I was no longer forming instantaneous attraction. Like this is different for everyone. So I really only have my experience to reflect on, but I didn't form instantaneous attractions to people that I had only spoken to for five minutes. Like I, I hormonally had moved beyond that by that age. This lucky you, (laughs) this seems more relevant for someone who's like 14, 15, 16, you know, like just developmentally. Mm -hmm. But in some ways for Han, it does make sense because he never, as far as we can tell, had moments like this when he was with Shrike. Yeah. And for Bria, also, given her background then being a slave on Alicia, didn't have that either. I just think it would have been much more interesting to have them have an actual foundation. That's fair. Or like It would have made me believe everything that happens later more, and it would have made it hurt more, which is what I always want out of fiction. Oh, this one hurts me a lot. <laughs> it doesn't really hurt me enough. <laughs> It's always just hit me right in the heart. Okay. (laughs) The other thing that happens early on is that Han is way too pushy with physical affection with Bria. She, while giving some kind of mixed signals, is still clearly verbalizing no. Mm -hmm. And he is trampling all over that boundary, which makes me super uncomfortable. He's like love bombing her. And she's already really vulnerable. So... I hate that dynamic. Yeah. That's really uncomfortable. (laughs) I've already said that there are too many ellipses. (laughs) There is a lot of them. Open this book to a random page and you'll find an ellipses, I bet. Yep. (laughs) Just open to page 185. There's an... There's... On these two pages, 184 and 185, there are three different ellipses. (laughs) Can I open it to a different one and find more? Yep. (laughs) Page 105, one, two, three, four, five. <laughs> five ellipses on a single page. Wow. Too many. <laughs> Just, that's my, that's my very surface level feedback. <laughs> Merg was really a bright spot for me. I love Merg. Loved Merg. Like, I, I know loved... he's a stain-in for Chewy, but what a great stain-in for Chewy. I feel like he and Han had a better uh, connection than Han and Bria. <laughs> I, I actually think that's fair to say. It just feels much more like they're thrown together. Like they have. So Han has to go keep seeking Bria out for no reason. But Han and Merg are thrown together and have to work together. And so it feels more realistic that they actually have like a foundational friendship that Merg ends up feeling betrayed because he overhears Han say that like he'll take care of him to get Han and Bria out of there. Like it just feels more genuine <laughs> yeah i agree merg is he's a wonderful character i i love that han just attracts these to us weird strange alien creatures and just has, gets, makes these great bonds and friendships with them. yeah he loves them like i, I love that a han thing like it's not just unique to chewy it's just what he does yeah there was merg before that there was dulana like it's just a thing han solo does and I, I love that so much for his character yeah it I feel like this is a component of his characterization that betrays that he's never truly a scoundrel. Yeah, and I I like that. Yeah. Like, he's never a truly horrible, awful person. He's not necessarily a good person. No. And he's trying to be legitimate. As legitimate as he can be from his background. In a world and universe that is, frankly, terrible. Yeah, and makes it really impossible for people like him to have legitimate lives. Like, the most legitimate thing he can do is join the Empire. 
After changing his retinal patterns and having a fresh identity. Because his backer would not have let him do otherwise. Yeah. Like, he never had a chance or a choice for any of those things. Okay, at least he had a choice, but still. That was to get away from a terrible situation, and he needed that experience, and he could not have gotten to a actual legitimate job, probably, to get that kind of experience. Yeah. So, he made the best of a bad situation. Yeah. I do love the Elysian scam. Yeah, it's it feels properly scummy. And I, I like this even worse than Shrek. I was like, God, somebody should shut this place down. It's worse than Shrek, whatever Shrek did. Like, yeah. Great reaction to that when he learns about it. It's just a great strategy. I do wish... Great being terrible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, great, terrible, thin line. <laughs> I do wish we'd gotten into more of the ideology of the one and the all. Rather than just, this is the one, this is the all, yeah. vibrate and moan. Just because, why do the pilgrims think it's okay to be processing spice? Like, what is the doctrinal reason that it's okay for them to be processing spice? And do the priests ever give them, like, an explanation for that? I forget if it's in this book or not, but certainly other books do talk about how spice, at least in the uh, Jedi Canada trilogy, how spice can be used for medicinal purposes. It has... It has uses beyond illegal activities. But anyone with a handful of brain cells would know that Talanda Till are cousins of the Huts, and there's a hut here. And Huts don't run spice for medicinal reasons. No. They run it for profit. Yeah. Which so, can lead to medicinal reasons at times. I just wish there's a lot of characterization, both in this book and the following two books, of the pilgrims as most of them come in already in a uniquely vulnerable position and so they don't need a lot of explaining or reason i find that kind of unsatisfactory mm -hmm. like i think proportionally there's got to be at least some percentage among them who need a little bit more explanation in order to go along with this whole thing or to really buy into it well i wonder if some like mrav is kind of like that she didn't buy into it she never fell for it but she also couldn't do anything about it if she tried like it would have been bad for her like things would have gone very poorly if she had tried to act out again things would speak to the other pilgrims yeah i just wish I, th I think it would have been more interesting if the talanda till had been forced to like form a whole a whole fake religion just an entire <laughs> instead of this like very surface level nothing so i talked about the issues i have with the first hundred pages of the book i also have issues with the final 80 pages of the book yeah so, I think the escape happens too early. It leads to Han and Bria just kind of meandering around slowly to different locations, and the action is totally stalled after this point. Like, they're just they're just running from spot to spot. They're just reacting. They're not... Whereas before, I felt like they were very, like, Han has a plan. Like, he's not react he is reacting to the stuff around them they have to move up their escape because of when Mrav is going to be moved but like they're driving the action him and Bria and Merg and then after that it feels like they're just reacting to other people's actions it does pick up twice when the money is revealed to be inaccessible and then Shrike reappearing but the pacing just feels kind of weird very weird, especially because, again, Shrike did not come up. Yeah, I do wish Shrike had been more present. Not 
present as in physically present, but just more on Han's mind, talking about Bria, talking about Merg, to both of them about Strike, like where he came from. In order for him to feel like the final antagonist of this book, and he wasn't he needed, the ba- a random bounty hunter was, yeah, which is kind of funny. He needed to cast a much longer shadow, and he simply did not. It kind of feels like as soon as Han was done processing his flashbacks on that robot ship, he was like, Oh, I'm never going to think about that guy again. Fair I enough. even thought, like, he goes to sell some stuff. He goes to two people on Corellia that he knew from his days with Strike. The ship guy that mm-hmm. he sells the talisman to. And the, like, I don't know what the to jeweler? call this. The, like, yeah, the, what are the, like, the pawn shop yeah. guy. And I was like, surely at any point, one- he's going to think one of these people could report me to Strike. Or one of those people could have reported him to Shrike, and Shrike could have come back in, I think, too late, but at least a little bit earlier. But no, Han doesn't worry about that at any point, which I thought was so stupid. Like, these are people that he knew from his cons with Shrike. Surely they are more loyal to Shrike than they are to him. And surely Shrike is still around. Yeah, and wants something for, like, information about Han or, you know... I don't know. It was just very strange. I'd almost propose two books or just a clean two-part book Mm. where they spend longer dealing with Shrike tailing them instead of just Han having that problem after Bria has already left him. Like, the Yelysia stuff happens in the part part, one of the book, and it's it's just a totally different pacing scenario in that case because you are clearly delineating these are two books with two different or not two books, parts. but two parts with different levels of like rising and falling action and all of that stuff. And you wouldn't have to elongate it that much. I think just like it was a pretty short, quick read. This was not a long book. Yeah. So you could have, you know, you could have fleshed that stuff out a little bit more. <laughs> you could have. I, I do agree. The pacing is weird, but I kind of like it when a story tries to change things up in that regard, even when it doesn't land as well as it could. You give too many brownie points for trying is what it comes down to. And I'm like, no, try again. (laughs) Sorry. And I, like I said earlier, I do like, it does hurt me when, when and how Brie leaves on. It also makes a lot of sense. What, why she chooses to leave to me. I, I really like that. Ren is the one who helps them out. And that's how Han gets into the Academy. And he's like, I've achieved my dream. I'm where I want to be. Guess what, Han? The next book, you're going to find out just how wrong you are. Yeah, we're going to skip all that stuff. <laughs> so with Paradise Snare behind us, it's now time to turn attention to The Hut Gambit, the second book in the Han Solo trilogy. But before we do that, let's talk about the cover. Han is staring at the reader. Dreamily. Deeply. <laughs> Deeply. Longingly. Actually, he's kind of looking over your shoulder. There are some X-Wings. There is another ship. I think this is Jabba on the cover at the bottom and Boba Fett. I mean, I know it's Boba Fett, but all huts look the same to me. Sorry. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) I mean, especially because he's like blue, like uh, this entire like color scheme. Yeah, it doesn't help. Is blue-ish. And Jabba doesn't have really defining, like there's that one in Clone Wars who's got the monocle. Yeah, like Jabba is like the base hut. Yeah. (laughs) There's a hut somewhere who's got like a six pack. Oh God, I forgot about that guy. Yeah. But Jabba's just there. Jabba's just, he doesn't need any accoutrement. 
He has his dancing girls, and he's happy. That's all he needs. That actually, I think, looks more like special edition Jabba than Return of the Jedi Jabba. Yeah, I think I'm not the right person to try and like judge that. <laughs> I'm not a visual person. Okay, and I don't think the two Jabbas look so different. The original special edition Jabba looked very, very CG in a very unfortunate way. I'm sure it did, but I can't like hold that in my brain for any length of time. And in re-releases since then, they have cleaned it up to make him look better. Okay. So like the last time we watched it, he would have looked much better. Always cleaning. When it's cleaning up just a shot with how poor certain effects look, I'm not completely opposed to that. I mean, that that shot wasn't even originally in the movie. Well... It technically was, but it was cut back when Jabba was still, you know, not a, when Hutch were not. Yeah, that's what slugs. I mean. It wasn't in the movie. Yeah. It wasn't in the theatrical release. Yeah. My favorite part of that shot, I think I mentioned this before, is Harrison Ford walks so closely behind the human actor who is playing Jabba back, back in the day. So they basically had two options when they put the scene back in. They could either digitally move Harrison around the tail or have him step on Jabba. And they chose to have him step on Jabba. Yeah, and he, like, I remember that part of the shot looking very awkward because... It does. They just sort of transpose Harrison upwards. Yeah. And it looks like he briefly just starts to ascend to the heavens. He casts fly on himself. Yeah, yeah. Or, like, hover. Yeah. That's the cover. There's, of course, also the, like, little tagline that they were putting on all of them this time. A young Han Solo defies danger and death. On an impossible quest for freedom. That actually kind of tracks. I don't feel like that's applicable in this book. No? No. Freedom for Narshada at the end? I don't feel like freedom is what Narshada wants. All right. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's stretching the definition of freedom. So the book opens with Han Solo, a former Imperial officer, he had risen to the rank of lieutenant, sitting in a bar on Deveron and wishing that he were alone. But... There is instead a Wookiee beside him, and the Wookiee is the source of all of Han's troubles. The Wookiee refuses to go home. He says he owes Han a life debt. Han says he owed another Wookiee, and that's why he saved this one. So this Wookiee owes Han nothing. Han had apparently stopped Commander Niklas from shooting the Wookiee and was kicked out of the Empire for it. He had been with the Empire for about five years at this point, so we've just skipped. Big time skip. So this is actually the first thing I want to talk about is, do you think it was a good call to skip the entire Imperial section of Han's life? No. No? But I understand why they did it. It's really hard to sympathize with somebody who's just like yeah, in the Empire for five years. Yeah. In the Imperial military machine. And like we get a few flashes back to it in this book and in the next book, but nothing really heavier concrete and i actually remember the first time i read this i was kind of looking forward to seeing him with the empire so i was very surprised and somewhat disappointed that it just skipped that entirely because i wanted to see him free chewy yeah i think they should have at the very least opened with that scene yeah and we do again they talk about the flashback to it but uh, not, not the quite, same yeah we all know i don't like flashbacks han is playing a game of block because what else is he gonna do and is accused of cheating. A fight breaks out, and the Wookiee actually saves him during it. And Han's like, you know what? Maybe if it Wookiee around as a partner isn't such a bad idea. The Wookiee's name is, of course, Chewbacca, and Han decides to call him Chewie. Han gets them a piloting job that will take them to Narheka. Half paid now, half paid later. 
Before they leave Deveron, they see recruiters for Elysia in the town square, and Han recognizes Veritil, one of the priests. He then sees a glimpse of reddish blonde hair and someone's profile, and he's convinced he's seen Bria. Fearing she's going back to Elysia, he dives into the crowd to get to her. Veritil recognizes Vic Drago pushing into the crowd, because, of course, Han is Vic to Veritil. Han catches up to the woman, but it's not Bria, and he realizes that he's been recognized and quickly just leaves. Later, Bria asks Lana Malo if Han got away, and Lana thinks so. Bria was in the crowd, she faced the exultation and beat it. She wants to go to Han, she trusts him with everything that's hers, but what she's doing right now, this isn't hers. She can't risk the movement, betrayal right now could end it before it begins. What movement, you ask? We'll learn more later. <laughs> Han tells Chewie about Elysia and the slavery there. He heard they were now up to five or six colonies, so it has expanded. He hopes someone shuts them down someday. He also tells Chewie about Bria. He's disappointed he didn't see her today. Chewie tells Han about Mulatto Buck, who he hasn't seen in 50 years, but they had some kind of... Have some torches carrying. Thought full meaningful connection before like they hadn't even really like made any distinct moves towards like we're in a committed anything it'd be like me sending you that first message on the internet Uh uh-huh and then not seeing each other for let's say a decade and just ignoring everyone else or hoping that they were ignoring everyone yeah it was a little stronger than that but still yeah han promises that they'll go to kashik as soon as they have their own ship I like that promise. Yeah. Han goes very quickly from, I don't want this Wookiee around, to, I would die for this Wookiee. <laughs> yeah. I, much like with Merg, Han's relationship with Chewie is one of the highlights of this book. Yeah. Unsurprisingly. Yeah. Once they get to Norheka, they go see Tagta the Hut. And Han demands the second half of their payment, and Tagta doesn't want to pay it. But because Han demands it, Tacta does end up paying it. He says he was just testing Han to see what Han would do in the situation. And he was impressed with this human's stubbornness. Yeah. Because some would just kind of meekly go away. And accept it and be afraid of the huts. Han then does something a little dangerous. He asks for Tacta's recommendation to Lord Jiliak. He's heard the hut is looking for pilots and... Kind of impressed by Han's bravado, both in taking the payment and asking for this, Tacta actually agrees to give him a recommendation. And he gives him, like, this cube and licks it. It's it's disgusting hut recommendation, but it's a recommendation. It's like how huts sign their yeah. name. Just by licking it and leaving some slime behind. Ugh. Oh, God. It's a big galaxy. <laughs> yes. After leaving, Han is ambushed by a bounty hunter, but Han manages to kill him. Han figures this is Teroenza's doing and probably happened because he was spotted in that crowd on Deveron. It's taken Teroenza four years to get most of his collection back. He now knows that Vic Drago's real name is Han Solo and has a 5,000 credit bounty on Han, but specifically for him alive. He does not want Han dead. He wants that honor, or that pleasure himself. Weirdo. Um, with Zval dead, Kibik the Hutt is now in charge of Elysia, but he's young and stupid. Terowenza's really in charge here. Han gets new fake IDs created for him and Chewie, and they head for Narshada. Han knows Mako Spence from the Academy, and last Han heard, Mako was now living on Narshada. And please don't come at me about how this name is pronounced, because... There are so many ways. There are so many Makos, Makos, and Makos. In science fiction. In science fiction. (laughs) 
And apparently this is how it's pronounced in the Dark Empire uh, audio tape. Audio I, drama. I think, because I haven't listened to that in a very long time. I'm pretty sure they said may go back in So I'm day. just trusting Tom on this, and we're going to be consistent with that. <laughs> Mako blew up Karita's mascot moon and was expelled for it, so we know that this is definitely the kind of company that Han keeps. He had only intended to blow up the insignia on the moon, but he miscalculated. He was a bit of a prankster. Mm-hmm. I think he came from a uh, wealthy family and was just kind of bored there, so... Just kind of classic rich kid acting out. Yeah, exactly. And he blows up a moon. And now he's, you know, living in the underbelly of society. They go to the Karelian sector and find Mako, and when Mako realizes who it is, he gives Han a big hug. And he, of course, approves of Han saving Chewie. He, I think, even said he didn't think Han would last long in the Empire. Han, despite his bravado and his what he presents to the world, Han's has a not soft, a, squishy egg. Well, he's just not a cruel person. Yeah. And it's hard if you have any kind of heart at all yeah. to stay and... Like, he was starting to kind of ascend the ranks, and the more you ascend, I think the more you see the cruelty of the Empire. So, he was not going or to... Or you realize how widespread it is? Like, yeah. it's not just this one little section your uh, your commander has? Yeah, like, he was not going to last. And Mako tells Han he will happily let others know that Han is such a good pilot and looking for work, and of course, will also hire Han as well. Nice of him. An old woman who says she's a descendant of Vima Sunrider approaches Han. We, of course, remember Vima's story from the Jedi Academy trilogy, and you know more details if you've read the old Tale of the Jedi comics as well. And this old woman, too. From Dark Empire. She offers to tell him his fortune for a credit. Han doesn't really want his fortune, but gives her a credit so he can get away. I really identify with that, Han. She tells him wealth will come to him, but only after Han has stopped caring about it. Han's like, <laughs> crazy lady. We then meet a new hut named Aruk. He's apparently approaching his ninth century because huts live a long time. So I don't love the body that they're stuck in, but like... You kind I'm, of jealous? I'm not opposed to living for... Nine centuries? Yeah. <laughs> He's the head of the Basadi clan, and apparently Zalva was his sibling, and they had created the, Eles- the Elysian scheme together. He knows Terowens is really running the show there, not Kibik, because Kibik, well, he's an idiot. But Kipik was the only one he could afford to send right now. He wishes he could send his son Durga. We all remember Durga, right? But he has a birthmark on his face, one that is an omen of disaster, so he knows he can't send him to be in charge of the important right now. True facts. Yeah. <laughs> Given the way that Durga eventually ends. Yeah. <laughs> Over the next five months, Han and Chewie deal with several more bounty hunters. They do flying and smuggling jobs. They meet Xenophyte. He takes them to Smuggler's Run, where they meet Blue, Kid, and Winnie. So this is A.C. Crispin connecting to Dark Empire and New Rebellion in this book. And I I, like, I actually really like that this book came out after those stories because they, she could connect to so many others. Yeah. Kid takes them to Kessel and tells Han all about the Kessel run. Near the Maw, time and space are distorted so people can actually shave distance off the run. But Kid recommends against it and Han agrees. And this is the poor author trying to make sense of less than 12 parsecs line in a new hope yeah and i think it works for the most part yeah this doesn't bother me on arshada they meet roa and learn Roa's rules never ignore a call for help never take from those who are poorer than yourself never place a block unless you're prepared to lose 
always be prepared to make a quick getaway, and never pilot a ship under the influence. Ro then takes them on their first castle run. Feeling established and confident, Han goes to the Desilogic clan headquarters and asks to see Jilliak. He's eventually allowed in and meets Jabba, too. What a historical moment in Star Wars. <laughs> Truly. A canon event. <laughs> Based on the recommendation from Tagta and the reputation he's established over the past several months, Han is hired as a pilot. Han has one requirement. He will not fly any slaves, but will transport just about anything else. Jabba and Jilliak agree. Yeah, they're like, oh, that's kind of a weird request for a human, but we, we deal in some slavery, but not as much as the Besetti clan does, so we can make that work. Can make that accommodation. Over the next several months, Han flies several missions for the Huts and for Roa. He does the Kessel Run several times and feels quite comfortable doing so. One time he flies Jabba to Tatooine and they are ambushed by pirates on the way in. Han realizes they are pirates before the attack and manages to chase them off, which impresses Jabba. Jabba thinks the attack is from the Busadi clan and Juliak agrees. They ask Han how he knew the pirates were going to attack. Han says he dealt with similar attacks five years ago, and Jiliak realizes he met Han when he flew for Elysia. He asks if Han is still working for them, and Han says no, and he'll take any kind of truth drug to prove it, but it's not needed. Jabba believes him. How nice. Jabba develops this very like paternalistic relationship with Han. It's kind of strange, isn't it? Over the course of this book, yeah. It's interesting. Back in the Effent uh, Mon short story, I had mentioned one of the reasons why I like that story so much is because it's one of the few stories that, lack of a better word, humanizes Jabba. This is one of the few other stories that does as well. It makes him much more interesting than just the this vile gangster who just feeds people rancors on a whim. Yeah, yeah. I feel like it almost did too much work to make Jabba seem reasonable. Fair, but I still... I, I appreciate that someone's putting the effort into making him a more nuanced, interesting villain than yeah. the movie lets him yeah. be. And I'm not disparaging Jedi for this because there's only so much time you have. Yeah. You can't do it. Yeah. This is why I've always liked supplemental material because you explore characters in a way that the movie doesn't get to. I mean, I feel like everyone kind of looks like a caricature to us going through life anyway. Yeah. Right? Like... Most people you never know beyond like a casual acquaintance or like a glimpse in a crowd or whatever. You form a lot of assumptions about that person based on what they're doing in that moment. You don't see any of the nuance. And like Jabba is that kind of passing person in Return of the Jedi. Mm -hmm. Who makes a very big impression. Yeah. (laughs) In many ways. Yeah. But like we're seeing him exclusively through the lens of a person who has pissed him off. Yeah. A lot. (laughs) And over a long period of time, and like he has this criminal empire to run and it's made things very uncomfortable for him. But the other thing I find interesting about the huts in these books is how they look down on other species. Like they think that the, that they are like the pinnacle of evolution. Yeah. Kind of like the pinnacle of sentience. Yeah. Which I, I, I love that idea too. We're kind of like that yeah. on Earth. Like it, it makes sense for, lack of a better, put a higher life forms to think that, and they think they are the highest life form. But like Jabba develops this relationship with Han, where he's like, you know, for a pet human, he's pretty great, yeah. basically. <laughs> Han tells them he was Vic Drago. They ask him if he helped kill Zavall, and he says yes, and they are very happy about this fact. Even though he didn't actually do it intentionally, but he doesn't say that because it makes them happy. Yeah, leave it out. Leave that part out. <laughs> He also tells them about Terra, which is treasure room, and what he took from there. And they're, they're actually just very impressed what he did to the Elysian operation. They're like, good job. Good job, human. 
Boba Fett goes to see Terowenza. Terowenza wants the bounty hunter to go after Han Solo. Boba says 7,500 credits is not worth his time. Terowenza says he's raising the bounty to 20,000. Boba says he'll add Han to the list, but he's not going to be a priority. I'm going to drop everything and go after this one guy. Terowenza really hates Han. Yeah, he really just wants to squeeze him like a pimple. (laughs) Oh, what an image. (laughs) Han goes to a magic show done by a woman named Zaveri, which we all remember her from. From Crystal Star. Yep. And Han is so impressed that he introduces himself to her afterward, and he goes back to the show every night, and the two get to know each other, become friends, and over time he learns she hates the Empire, apparently it killed her husband and children. Revenge is her religion. She never misses an opportunity to hurt the Empire. Eventually he stays the night with her and leaves early the next morning. Something jabs him in the right buttock. That's what the book says. He's always getting jabbed or shot in the buttock. Yep. And he's been drugged and can't fight back. The drug makes him able to follow commands given to him, but kind of nothing else. As they approach a ship, a figure steps out and stops them. Han doesn't know this person, but the person thankfully stuns the bounty hunter who has him. Han's rescuer is a very dash and debonair Lando Calrissian. And he says the bounty hunter is Boba Fett, and Han's like, oh crap, this is Boba Fett? Han feels dizzy. He only knows of Boba Fett by reputation. And he's like, why is he coming after me? Lando stabs Fett with the drug he used on Han and tells him to just fly away. Lando just won a ship at Bespin, and the reason he even came across Han during this is because he was looking for Han. He wants Han to teach him how to pilot the ship. Han sees the Millennium Falcon for the first time and immediately falls in love with it. He knows the ship will be his someday. He starts showing Lando the basics of piloting. And like whenever Han's just kind of looking at it or like looking in the cockpit, Lando's like, hey, hey, pay attention to me. You're here to train me, not start gazing yeah, at my ship. I'm paying you. <laughs> There's a raid on Alicia to rescue slaves, and Bria is, of course, one of the rescuers. The pilgrims didn't want to leave, even though she tells the truth of what's going on. So she orders the pilgrims stunned and taken away. They managed to free almost 100 slaves. Han is worried that Boba Fett will return, and he decides to leave Narshada for a while. Smart. He and Chewie will travel with Zaveri as her assistants in the show. I kind of like that idea. Yeah. Han, the magician. <laughs> Before he leaves, he informs Jabba and Jiliak that he'll be gone for a while, and he learns that Jiliak is now a she and is pregnant. So, huts have the ability to change their sex to have a child. Fascinating. For the rest of the series... Juliac is a she. Mm-hmm. In fact, they have the ability to revert back yeah. after they've had the child. Yeah, when but Juliac just never, never chooses to. When they, when Han walks in, he's like, "What's wrong with him? He doesn't look so good." And Jabba's like, "Can't you tell this is my aunt, my aunt now?" Yeah, like, can't you tell my aunt is pregnant? <laughs> and I was like, "Okay, like, no, I'm a human. <laughs> I have no idea what you huts are up to." <laughs> I actually like that. I know it's Hutz that get this, but I like that this kind of thing is here in the 90s in Star Wars. Yeah. Like, at least there was some level of openness of mind to imagine that another species does not procreate the way that we do. Yeah. And that sex and gender could be different in yeah. a galaxy that is huge and has a variety of sentient life forms. That feels pretty subversive for the 90s. Right? <laughs> I remember I read a sci-fi story as a I was a kid in the 90s and somehow procreation came up and this 
the species was like, wait, there's only two of you. There's like, we need like 17 of us to <laughs> carry. Like it was, something, it was something absurd like that. Like just so wildly different. I, I always loved that kind of idea. Like it's science fiction. There should be differences in how species propagate. Yeah. I mean, there's differences in how species propagate just on our yeah. single planet. So, so of course in a wide galaxy, there's going to be so many ways. I think there are species like this on our planet that can change our, there are definitely species their... that can reproduce asexually. Yeah. I think that some can, but I don't. I can't. Yeah, think of I don't know of any examples, but I feel like I've heard of that before. And then we get into hut politics, which <laughs> is one of my favorite parts of this trilogy. I'm a weirdo. <laughs> the hut clans meet at the Grand Council Hall. Representatives of all major clans are present. Rook tells everyone that the of the attack on Alicia and demands that Juliac assure them she was not behind it. There will be an investigation, and Juliac promises to play the Basadi clan one million credits of anything that's found, because she's like, we didn't do this, I promise you. I will pay you a million credits if, it's, if the league is found, but there isn't one, so back off. However, after this meeting, later on, Rob and Juliet decide, you know what? It's time to reach out to Terra Lens and see what we can do about this. Because the Elysian scheme is bringing in the Basadi clan so much money, it's absurd. And they're both like, we wish we had come up with this idea first. Bria is with a small group of rebels in the Corellian system. She's become quite the spy. She knows the disparate rebel groups need to unite, but it hasn't happened yet. 53 of the rescued slaves from Elysia have returned there, but 44 chose to stay free. Bria still loves Han, but knows they can't be together right now. She knows he won't give up his life for the rebellion. Someday he might give himself to a cause, but it's one he'll have to choose himself. I love that Bria is a rebel. Yeah. I, I love that she's early not, rebel. Yeah, it's not even a proper rebel the way we think of it, but this is this is back I mean, before it, there's any. It's like the equivalent of the Ghost Crew, like yeah, er, they're a rebel cell. I think even earlier than that, it feels like in some ways. Yeah, because it seemed like they were at least even early on they had Fulcrum. Right. Whereas there's something. This there. is like a proto rebellion. Yeah, and I, I love that she's part of that. It, it, I feel like it's so perfect for her. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense for her. Han and Chewie have traveled with Zaveri for six months. However, when the tour ends, she just leaves them, leaving only a note. Ghosted. <laughs> and in the note, she tells Han she's grown too fond of him, and she can't afford that. So Han returns to Narshada, sad, and like, why do women keep leaving me notes and just leaving me? <laughs> poor, poor man. I feel like he's not as upset about this one, though. He's not. like He, like... I think that he and Zaveri had a pretty good understanding. Like she had made it pretty clear. Like this is just this is just fun. Yeah, it's fun. It's a good time. They're good for each other in the short term, but probably not long term. Yeah. But she also knew that she was becoming too fun. That's why she had to end it. But also knew she couldn't do it face to face, which is that's rough, buddy. And Han will take this lesson to heart later on when he's the one who gets to just leave someone. Yeah. <laughs> They go back to Narshada and learn that Lando hit it big and bought a used spaceship lot. Lando also has a new droid named Vuffy Ra. So if you have read the old Lando Calrissian adventures from the early 80s, this is where Vuffy comes from. And again, this is I see Crispin weaving those stories into this. And if you haven't read them, no one could possibly blame you because they're incredibly boring. They're fun. I enjoy that. I fell asleep multiple times trying to read the first one, and I am not convinced I absorbed anything from it, except for the name of this droid. And actually, one in the solo movie, one of my favorite parts is Lando giving his dictation, and all those dictations are references to the series. 
Han leases a ship from Lando and names it the Bria. Oh. Jabba is happy that Han is back after his long tour of magic. <laughs> Terawinds is not happy with how Uruk treats him. He received a message a while ago from Jabba and Juliak and initially did not respond. But now he's like, you know what? I'm so unhappy with what's going on here. It's time. So he reaches back out to Jabba and Juliak. Boba Fett goes to see Jabba. Jabba offers to pay him 25,000 credits to not go after Han Solo. What a easy job. Yeah. Given that Aruk recently dropped the bounty on Solo, but raised it on Bria Theron, Boba happily agrees. However, if he ever does go after Han in the future, he will return Jabba's money to him. He's an honest bounty hunter. Yeah, it's, it's, this meets his honor criteria in a weird way that I, I kind of yeah. like that. Han's new ship gives him fits and he meets a few new people over the next few months. Mako introduces him to Shug Ninks, remember from Dark Empire. He's a master mechanic who helps work on the Bria. Han also meets a new lady friend named Salazent, and they quickly hit it off. So quickly. She's also from Dark Empire. A young kid approaches Han and says that he's his long-lost relative. His name is Jarek Solo, and he wants to be a pilot. Roa looks in the kid's background. He's a street kid, born and raised in Narshada, but Han likes the kid too much to send him packing. Han, you're... Again, you're too soft and squishy. Sweet cinnamon roll. Jiliak and Jabba meet with Tarawenza in secret. They discuss ways to kill Aruk and decide to poison him. They'll use a poison that won't kill Aruk. It will concentrate in his brain and he'll become addicted to it. The removal of the poison is what will actually kill him. Tarawenza suggests using Nala tree frogs. Aruk has grown quite fond of them and they are shipped from Elysia with every spice shipment sent to Aruk. That's a, that's a good way to kill someone. This isn't the poison won't kill you. The withdrawal will. Yeah. And they'll be concealed in his knowledge tree frogs. Yeah. Smart plan. The Empire announces that it will move against the huts. Jabba and Juliak decide to bribe Sarnshield, the local moth of the sector. And they decide to have Han Solo be the one to bring the bribe since he used to work for the Empire. Makes sense. Han heads to Coruscant and meets with Moff Sarnshield. Shield says he can spare Nalhada if they become law-abiding citizens <laughs> of the Empire, but Narshada will be made an example of. So Nalhada is where the huts live, Narshada is the moon where the smugglers live. Han then hears Bria's voice, and Shield introduces her as his niece, though it's clear to Han she's anything but. Later, Bria cries. Han clearly thinks she's a concubine, that she's just Shield's lover. But she's actually on assignment for the rebel movement on Corellia, and she hasn't shared Shield's bed. He's not really interested in her. He just wants to have arm candy. Yeah. Like, his proclivities otherwise are... And, like, he's an older... Much older. Older man. Like, I, I think older than Tarkin. Yeah. Han is in a bad mood when he gets back to Narshada. He's ready to leave and go to Smuggler's Run. But Chewie wants to fight. Han says any rebellion against the Empire is doomed. Han tells Mako the bad news, and he says a lot of people can't leave, and there certainly won't be an evacuation. Yeah, this is Narshada. Most people... Like this kid, Jarek, they're stuck here. They're like living paycheck to paycheck. They don't have extra resources to get out. Honestly, even saying living paycheck to paycheck is above a lot of them. Yeah, they're living gig to gig. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a gig economy on Arshida. The Huts find out the Imperial fleet will be led by Admiral Winstel Greelinks and plan to bribe him. So once again, they send Han to negotiate. And Han thinks when they can get the Imperial battle plan, they've got a slim chance to get out of this alive. Han goes to Greelinks and is told they will destroy Narshada and then blockade Nalhada until the Huts agree to customs inspections. 
Han tells Greelanks they'll pay for the battle plans and then ask the Greelanks to leave the battle at the first opportunity that makes sense for him. He agrees to these conditions doubtfully. Mako is put in charge of Narshadaw's defense, and Han is his right-hand man, so so much for Han running off to Smuggler's Run and abandoning everybody. He just can't do it. No. <laughs> They're too believe who he likes. <laughs> He always like he always says that he's only out for himself. It's such a lie. And then all of his actions directly contradict that. And so he just says it louder and everybody's like, yeah, Han, sure. We believe you. We believe you. Now, in A New Hope, the, we, the audience, initially believe him because we don't know him. He actually he yeah. has a gruff exterior. And the series actually explains why it's so gruff. Yeah. But yeah, he similar as you called him earlier. Sticks his neck out for people. S.H.I.E.L.D. tells Bria that Palpatine has told them to leave the Basadi alone. They provide good slaves. He thinks this will make him much more powerful. He thinks also the Empire has been stretched too thin. He'll lead the Outer Rim in seceding from Palpatine. He'll give them independence and prosperity. And eventually, he'll even be able to challenge the Emperor himself. What? <laughs> and the more he's talking, the more just scared Bria is getting. Because is she a rebel? Yes. But she also knows this kind of talk from someone in the Empire against Palpatine is a quick way to death. She's like, there are ears everywhere, dude. What are you doing? Like, I need to leave this assignment right now and just GTFOs. And then, your favorite thing. When Captain <laughs> Suntir Fell is on one of the dreadnoughts attacking Hut's face, he's not impressed with the battle plan. It's very by the book. And he doesn't think it's going to work. For Several books for several years. We have heard so much about Felt, never seen him. We finally see him in Vision of the Future at the end of the 90s era of the timeline. The very next thing we, not the very next, but almost the next thing we read is in terms of timeline, jumping very, very far back to before the original trilogy. And there, and there he is. Again. <laughs> when I read this, always I, where you least expect him. I started just cracking up so much because of just of your reaction to finally seeing him. <laughs> I think when I got to this part, too, I was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> again? It felt so absurd to read this after Vision of the Future. Yeah. But again, this it's is... It's almost like you planned it, just for this. I didn't. I wish I could say I had. I can take credit for it, but I cannot. Mm. The, this is just Chris, but again, she is connecting to what is being written at the time. And that's both the Hand of Throne duology, but also Wraith Squadron as well. Greelanx has received a secret message from high up. He's supposed to lose this fight. Interesting. Interesting. Who sent that? I don't know. Who do you think sent it? I don't... Uh, uh, I'm, I'm just not sure. Someone who wanted to have a reason to eliminate him. So, maybe Palpatine? If not him, then one of his one higher One of his ups. agents. Yeah. Maybe Mara? Maybe Mara. <laughs> Durga is told that Uruk is ill. He was talking and then just suddenly collapsed. But he feels fine a few minutes later, and Aruk is told to exercise more and give up eating rich foods. He insists on keeping the tree frogs, and the doctors allow him this one vice. So this poison wall isn't killing him. Besides making him addict of it, it is affecting his higher brain capacity. Han has called Zaviri back to Narshada. He wants her to create a hollow illusion of ships going at the Imperial fleet. Han and Mako haven't told anyone when the attack will happen. The pilots will be going out on training exercises at one of several they've done, and then the Imperial attack may begin during one of those. They don't want any leaks. Most of those involved don't know they have the Imperial battle plan. 
a drill is called, and then instead of it being a drill, the battle begins. Yes, a lot of these are smuggler types. These are thieves, criminals. Can't trust them. No, like. On the one hand, Star Wars is very much about the honorable thief. On the other hand, it's also realistic in knowing that a lot of these are maybe not bad people, but they're not trustworthy people, certainly. And a lot of them are bad people, let's be honest. Yeah, a lot of them do bad things. Yeah, but the Empire is worse, so go smugglers in this in this case. Yeah. It starts with the smuggler ships just running away from the Imperial fleet, and Relinx wonders how he'll manage to lose this battle. Once the Imperial ships get far enough, though, the first wave of hidden smugglers attack. One of the Imperial ships is destroyed, surprising Greenlinks. Fel is not happy about the ship's loss and wants to do more in the fight, but is told not to. They have to follow the plan and stick to the plan, Fel. And he's like, no. The smugglers are doing surprisingly well, but have still lost 25% of their ships. The smugglers retreat as the next phase of the plan begins. Zaviri pushes a button that says, don't touch unless you're Zaviri. With an exclamation point. Greelanx orders his fleet to turn to face this new fleet that has suddenly appeared. The Imperials do start to realize that the fleet isn't real, so Han, Lando, and Sala slip in to give the Phantom Fleet some real teeth. I like that plan. It's fun. This room, again, this actually reminds me of the Falanasi a lot. Yeah. And I wonder if that's where she got the idea for it. With the Imperial attention diverted, the smuggler fleet teams up with the mercenary fleet that the Huts had hired to protect Nalhada and flank the Imperials. A dreadnought is disabled, and it crashes into Narshadal's energy shield, destroying it. Greenlinks isn't happy. How dare the smugglers inflict this damage on his fleet? He fights the urge to rally his troops. He was looking for an excuse to exit the fight, and he now has it. Fel is astonished at the order. He knows they could still win this fight. Han tells Zaviri she was the reason they won. She says she's always happy to hurt the Empire, and then she heads out. Lando and Buffy Ra head to the Ossian system. Again, one of the Lando cover scene books. Lando says he's to practice gambling. He wants to enter the big term on Bespin in six months, and there's a 10,000 credit buy-in. He tells Han that he should join. Han's like, nah, too rich for me. Aruk dies, and Durga is sad. <laughs> Getting right to the point. Yep. He's also convinced his parent was poisoned. The clan is about to split in two over who will lead after Aruk's death. As a reminder, a lot of them kind of look poorly on Durga because of his facial deformity. They think it's a bad luck, ill omen kind of thing. So he hires Black Sun to quietly eliminate the opposition, and then he takes over in true Hut fashion. Yep. It's very Hut of him, but also using Black Sun? That's dangerous. Big no-no. <laughs> Don't get involved with those people. Han takes the payment to Greenlinks, and while there, they're interrupted. And Greenlinks is told, he just landed. It's an unscheduled inspection. Who is he? We'll find out. So he has Han hide, and Han wonders who he is. Han then hears heavy breathing. Someone is wearing a respirator mask. Greenlegs pleads, and Han then hears a thump. And then the being leaves. We, of course, know who this is. Yeah. Han waits a while and then exits. There's no mark on the body, and Han has no idea how Greenlegs died. The payment has been locked up, but one crate dragon pearl had fallen out of the safe. Han grabs it as he leaves, and he exits in a life pod. Chewie picks him up as Ty's attack. The Bria is destroyed, but they manage to get to an escape pod in time. Terawenda is happy to that Aruka's dead. He's like, yes, now I can do whatever I want on Alicia. Good times. It's my playground now. Shield is summoned to see Palpatine, who is most displeased with him. Bria has disappeared on Shield, and he wonders where she went. He decides suicide is better than the Emperor. The only question is, blaster or poison? 
Han goes to Corellia. He grabs the last piece of Tarawinza's treasure he had kept safe. Between that and the parole from Greelanx, it should get him 10,000 credits. He's going to Bespin to enter the game. Ending. About six months have passed at this the point. What do you think? I I didn't like this one as much as the first one. I mean, spoilers, I don't like two and three as much as I like one because I feel like they're even less focused than one was. I think of the three, this is the weakest to me, but the Battle of Nar might be my favorite part of the series. Yeah, that was pretty cool. so cool. I liked the way that they all pulled together and the, like, light tricks with Zaviri and just the little, like, all the hut politics Yeah, the hut politics are so much fun, so interesting. I really love the plan to assassinate Uruk, how well that works. Like, it's very hard to kill a hut. It's almost impossible to poison a hut. Yeah. So I, I really like that, that thinking outside the box. And again, like I said before, I really love the glimpse of the early rebellion through Bria. That's so fascinating to me. I think my big complaint is just that it it did feel unfocused and it felt like things that were kind of important happened really fast. Yes. Like an obvious thing to point to is Han's two love interests in this book. It feels like it's like a foregone conclusion. They meet and they just get along and then they're together for a while and then Well he's still with Sal at the end of this book, to be fair. Yeah, I know. But it just it feels all like those two plot lines felt almost superfluous to me. The Zaviri one less so because she comes back and she plays a big role. And at least she did I mean, both these connect to earlier stories that are later in the timeline, so I, I get why Crispin put both these characters in there. Uh, but I, I agree, I like Zaveri more than Sal in that regard because she has such a major role in the Battle of Narshadah. Whereas Sal, uh, she she does play a part in that fight, but she is much less important to the overall story of Han Solo. She just had to be there to fit with Dark Empire. Yeah. I also felt like so many of the other connections Han makes in this book in terms of like his friends among the smugglers, they all happen so fast and so easily. Yeah, so many times we've got six months pass, a few months pass, five months pass. Like, yeah. I, I love this series deeply, but the biggest issue with it is it covers ten years. Yeah. And five of those are just skipped completely, but yeah, un- unfocused is a good word for it. And... It's it's weird to me that like the most well developed relationships Sahan has in this book are with Huts and with Chewie and with, and with Chewie, but uh, that happened really fast too. Like he goes in one, the span of one night, he goes from like stop following me to yeah, come on. <laughs> I mean, he learned how first useful Chewie is in the fight, and then he just gets to know him. I, I just wish the whole like getting to know. Each like, other part lasted longer. Like with Merc. Like we actually got to see the development of that relationship. Yeah. yeah. Like it, it. Like you were saying, it feels like, okay, and one month passed and now they're best friends. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I love this book. But yeah, that is the biggest issue I have with it. Frankly, it should be, there should be more I books. I think it should have been structured differently. Yeah. Like if, I understand that the author was asked to fill Do in ten these years. 10 years. But I would have structured it more like really focus around this thing that happens on Narshada with the Empire. And you can do some summary of like what passed in, in, you know, the five to six years before. And just like make this book take place over the span of only a few months instead of I mean it ends up being like over 
maybe a couple of years because Han travels be. with Zaviri for six months. Six months. It takes five months for him to introduce himself to Jiliak. Like, yeah, com- compress things a little bit yeah. so that it feels more focused. And one one thing that's been much more common in Disney than the EU are books that do take place over several years. I'm thinking of like Catalyst, for example, or Lost Stars. Both of those have very long time frames. Mm-hmm. And personally speaking, I prefer a much more focused book like you. Sometimes, though, and I think actually Lost Stars is a great example of one that has a long time timeline that works very well for me. But generally speaking, I do look for mo- the more focused nature of Paradise Snare over this. I think the problem with books that are on that long timeline is that it feels like the characters are not doing anything to advance things and they're just waiting around. Yeah, to hit to the next story point that we all know is coming in Star Wars fans. Yeah. Um, so that can be, I don't know. I agree. And that, that's actually why the Catalyst novel, I didn't like that one as much because it was such a long time frame. Yeah, I remember not loving that one either. It, it and was, I also remember not loving Lost Stars, which you were really disappointed yeah, by. Yeah, I was. You were like, this is perfect for Crystal. It's like a star-crossed romance in Star Wars. And then I was like, I don't love this. <laughs> I yeah, Catalyst wasn't bad, but I didn't love it. Yeah. Especially with how much we love Rogue One, I think, was part of the reason why we didn't like it as much. Yeah. Yeah. Like, you don't need to know more, kind of, after I'm Rogue happy One. to know more, but yeah. I feel like sometimes knowing more is not better. In fact, I often feel that way. <laughs> the opposite of me. That's a total, just a difference between us in terms of... Uh, you would really love the books that I'm reading right now. <laughs> I probably would. I probably will someday. Uh, they're so long. And then one final thing I want to mention I like about this book is Vader's appearance at the end. Mm. We don't see him. We know who it is. Han doesn't. Th- this actually, to me, feels much more in line with what, what Disney has done with Vader if he's this boogeyman who no one knows about. Yeah. I just can't believe he didn't sense Han in the closet. I may have. I just didn't care. Like, he's here for Greenlinks, no one else. Like, others. No Vader else. has never seen an opportunity to just bludgeon someone that he didn't take. True, but, like, to my knowledge, he doesn't kill anyone else on the ship. Han even sees someone else as he's trying to leave. Yeah. He's, Han sees somebody else in the life pod corridor. Mm-hmm. It's not like there was another person that Vader would have crossed paths with. Well, I mean, he came through the ship, so he would have crossed paths with. Potentially many. Yeah, I'm just saying he didn't run into somebody right outside Greelinks' office. Yeah. I just don't, like, he's so attuned to the Force. Han is so freaked out. This is such a weird situation that he's suddenly in. It's hard for me to believe that Vader didn't sense, like, his panic and just come over there to check it out. I just don't think he cared. I really don't. Like, he's here to kill one man who messed up and... You know, but doesn't ha- he want to know why somebody's hiding in Greelinks' closet? Subordinate? Lover? Who cares? I, I, I just don't think Vader cared. I really don't. I do not agree with you. Clearly. <laughs> it's It seems like a huge plot miss, plot hole to me. Because if Vader is here to kill this one guy to cover something up, what if the person in the closet knows about the cover-up? Uh, isn't that a threat? Does Vader know what the cover-up t- I think Vader just knows that Greenlinks failed the battle. I think Vader knows everything. I think he knows who sent the note. I don't know if Vader even knows about the note. I think he does. Okay. 
I, I think this scene is really weird. It's weird to me that Han is in that closet and does not have does not end up dying. I think they should have removed Han from the room before having that thing happen. Okay. That would have made a lot more sense to me. And now it's time for the third and final book of this trilogy, Rebel Dawn. So let's start by, what do you see with the cover on this? Han is large. And in charge? And in charge. (laughs) Central, holding the blaster in his right hand, kind of up towards the air. The deep V-neck. The deep V-neck, the New Hope (laughs) V-neck. Is this the most accurate age looking for a Star Wars character on an EU cover we've seen? Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Same for Lando, I guess, who is in the bottom left. Chewie's in the bottom right. I mean, Chewie doesn't age, so. He does, just slower. And then there are some Imperial Star Destroyers and TIE Fighters kind of in the background in a starry sky. The tagline is... A young Han Solo plunges headlong into adventure to gain a fortune or lose his life. Ooh, that's exciting. I feel like that's kind of a misrepresentation of this book, but... I mean, that's kind of like Han's just daily life, I feel like. I guess. He's always trying to gain a fortune by doing risky things. Exactly. Han gets the best for the Sabacc tournaments, but he is without Chewie. And, unsurprisingly, when he arrives, he runs into Lando. And they actually haven't seen each other in months... Lando is now wearing a cape and is sporting a mustache. So, in the previous book, Lando was mustacheless, which is kind of a weird... I can't imagine it. Right? That mustache is an integral part of his face. And also, just without a cape, also hard to imagine. No, because sometimes he doesn't wear a cape in the movies. True, but he he prefers to. I mean, I prefer him to. (laughs) Han asks where the Falcon is, and Lando says it's back at his lot on Narshadoth. Lando arrived on the luxury liner at the Queen of the Empire. He came in style. Of course he did. Right? It's a big yacht. Big space yacht. I feel like a name like the Queen of the Empire is really strange, though. Yeah? Who's the Queen of the Empire? Like, usually when you name a ship, like, Queen of England or whatever, it's for a person. There is no Queen of the Empire. Maybe it's since ships are often referred to as she. I guess. That's probably the reasoning. I I don't love it, though. There are over 100 high rollers here for the four-day tournament. Han barely squeaks through the first day, but he does get through. Bria is actually also at Cloud City and is hoping that Han will win. She's here to meet representatives from Alderaan, Solust, Duros, and other planets, so she's not really here for him. She just happens to be here. So convenient. Resistance groups are growing, and she's trying to establish links between them. The tournament is good cover for them. She daydreams of Han joining the Resistance and fighting beside her. Among the delegates from Alderaan is a teenager named Winter, who we know quite well, of course. There is also a Kamasi named Elenik Itkla, who we had first heard about in I, Jedi. This is Nija Halcyon's friend. Bria makes her unity pitch to those assembled, There's resistance to a true alliance. Everyone kind of has their own issues slash concerns. But it's kind of like, you know, we'll share information and it's kind of the start. We'll contemplate it. Yeah. Han makes it to the fourth day in the final table. And of course, Lando is there as well. Han gets a pierce block and pushes all of his chips in. And he prays the cards don't change on him now. Because in Sablock, one of the things that makes this game so challenging... And both lucky and unlucky, your cards can change at a moment's notice. And there actually is a, I forget what it's called, there is some kind of field you can put your cards in that will... A randomizer. 
Well, not, not randomized. There's a field where your cards cannot change anymore. Oh, right. But the problem with putting your cards in there is people know you're not bluffing at that point and are less likely to call you. So if you want to win the hand, the big hand, you don't want to put them in there because no one else is going to call you on the bets. Yeah. Lando calls, and he uses a marker to match Han's bet because he has, he has lost some money. He doesn't have much Hondas at this point. And the marker is good for any ship on his lot, and the dealer asks if Han is okay with this, and Han accepts the marker for the ship as payment for the for the bets. And of course, Han wins the hands and the tournaments. Lando congratulates Han, and Han says he wants the Falcon. He just sort of blurts it out <laughs> instantly. Lando's like, what? Come on, That's man. That's not what I meant. That's not the spirit of the... Th- but he honors the bet. I'll say this. Good on Lando for honoring this. And he wasn't like... He was annoyed, but he wasn't like white hot mad, as they say in hockey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> One thing I actually will say, I kind of wish this had happened at the end of the previous book. Yeah. There was a time skip at the end of the previous book where Han is like... It's about six months between the two books. Well... But at the end of the previous book, six months skip ahead, and we see a brief scene from Han with the ten, like pulling oh, out yes. the ten thousand, yes, so yes. That he can go to this. Well, so the reason why I wish this would have happened in the previous book is to make it easier for my poor brain in terms of continuity and reading. Since this book came out, there have been a number of books featuring Han and Chewie with the Falcon flying around, gallivanting across the galaxy, which means those stories have to take place. Within Rebel Dawn. And trying to find a spot in Rebel Dawn to push pause and read an entire other book, it's easy for the Han Solo Adventures because they mark it. But for things like Death Troopers, or uh, I think it's Shadow Games, the Dash Rendar book, also Han is the Falcon in that one. So there's a number of books where, like, it'd be so much easier to read the continuity of the series, by the series I mean the EU, if Han had gotten the Falcon in the previous book. And for that reason, I've always wished she'd gotten it in the previous book. I mean, book. lots of things would be easier if anybody cared about continuity in the 90s. There's that, too. But, like... Well, the thing is, I don't blame Crispin for the lack of continuity that went, came after this. Sure. And of most course. of those books are post-90s. Yeah. So it's... Yeah. Bria is watching from afar and is very happy for Han. There's no Rebel Alliance yet, but she's happy that they've talked and learned about each other. She and Winter also talk, and Bria tells Winter about Alicia and how she wants to shut it down someday. And Winter tells her about her perfect memory. And she talks about she once met Palpatine in person and says that he is pure evil. There's just this malevolence about him that you can just feel and sense. And I really like that this, I'm not going to say normal, but non-Force-sensitive, non-Jedi being, can like even she can tell there's something wrong with this man. I really like that as an idea. She's going to tell Aldrin they need to fight. Bria has convinced her. And she's also sure she can at least convince Leia to fight. Aww. And I, I also really like this idea of Bria is one of the primary reasons why Alderaan joins the fight. Yeah. Lando asks Han where he's going to take the Falcon first, and Han says, Kashik. He promised Chewie a long time ago that that's what they would do, so that's what they're going to do. And I, I love this also. Yeah. Meanwhile, it's been six months since Aruk died. Durga has had his body frozen and hired the best forensic team in the Empire to find out what happened to his parents. The tests initially showed nothing, but eventually they found a rare substance in Aruk's brain. It's not natural, but the scientists can't be 100% sure that this is what killed him. But Durga is convinced that this must be what killed Aruk. And he's half right. It was the absence of that, but yeah. He's right about the spirit of the thing. Exactly. Unsurprisingly, prophets are down on Nalheta after the Imperial attack. 
and Jabba is trying to get Jiliak to care, but she's just too interested in her newborn baby. She is Jiliak is very much in the stage of baby and nothing else exists. Jiliak is a Facebook mom. Yeah. Through and through. It's actually really funny to think where Jiliak started this series to where she is now. Yeah. I I really like that. It's it's interesting. I also like that a hut who is because of what we see in the movies from Jabba, we kind of assume it's just the worst thing in the galaxy or among them can be a doting mother. Mm-hmm. I really like that as an idea. Yeah. Like even even these villains can they care very much for their for their spawn. Yeah. Zizor calls Durga. He is interested in Elysia. Zizor had helped Durga get control of the Basadi clan, but the price was so small that Durga knows that Zizor will be looking for more. Zizor offers to help Durga find out what happened to Aruk, but Durga declines. After the call, Zizor orders all results of Aruk's death given to him, and if any links to murder are found, then they're not going to let Durga see it. This is how powerful Zizor and Black Sun are. He can make it so Durga's own investigation won't tell Durga what has been found. Yeah. That's... Durga's investigation, which is also like tied to Imperial investigation. Yeah. like that. That's kind of scary when you think about it, yeah. because the huts are... Really powerful. And especially the Basadi clan right now. Like, Palpatine didn't want them touched because they are giving so many slaves to them. So that's how powerful they are. And still, Zizor's like, no, just don't let Durga know anything. And they'll do it. Yeah. Weird. Han goes back to Narshadah and tells Chewie the good news. They go and claim the Falcon and are already planning on how to upgrade the ship, including fake smuggling apartments, which are going to come in very, very handy someday. Yep. Okay, on many days. Soon, they head for Kashyyyk with a cargo of bowcaster explosive rounds. They land inside the branch of an enormous tree. Han is put in a bag and carried up the tree. It's called a kular. Is that how it's actually pronounced? I don't know. (laughs) I actually already mispronounced it as gular because I couldn't... Like, Google Docs thinks that the word is wrong, and so there's a red line under it, and so I couldn't tell if it was a G or a Q. Fair enough, it is technically not a word. Yeah, in this one instance, Google Docs, you are right. Most of the time, though, you are wrong. (laughs) And it's just, it's really funny watching Han be carried in this sack. Yeah, he doesn't enjoy it. No. They go to a Wookiee city and meet Adichitak, Chewie's father. They also meet a Wookiee named Rol Rachin, who has a speech impediment that allows him to speak basic. Which I always thought that was a funny thing. He has an impediment, and because of the impediment, he can speak basic. Yeah. And Han also learns that Bree was here as a member of the Corellian Rebellion. And the last time Han saw her, he thought she was some Moff's concubine. And now he's like, wait, she's a member of the Rebellion? Did I really see what I thought I saw? Did I misunderstand something? Sends him spiraling. Yeah. Chewie enjoys being home and didn't realize how much he'd missed it, but he knows that his place is ultimately with Han. He and Mulatto Buck do reconnect. He then goes to hunt a Quillarat. He kills it and offers it to Mala and asks her to marry him. She accepts. This is one of the few times that we see exactly what the Wookiees are saying. So it's this moment, the end of Empire's End, the short story about Chewie's family we read... And like one or two other brief moments. Oh, in the Black Fleet Crisis, we know what the Wookiees are saying sometimes. But overall, it's pretty rare. Yeah. She says she had other proposals, but always waited for him. She accepts that he will also have to leave with Han. They decide to marry quickly and enjoy their time together before Chewie has to leave. Han is incredibly happy for Chewie. And he also assumes that Chewie's going to stay with his wife and is sad to lose him. 
a fair assumption. Yeah, I totally get it. Chewie and Mala get married at the uh, ceremony. Han meets Dulot on his son, Achakalak, or Chalk for short. And Han tells Chalk that his mom died a hero. And they view each other as adopted brothers. And it turns out that Chalk and Chewie are distantly related. And this might be my favorite scene in this trilogy. It's just so sweet. You are so soft. What? Such a cinnamon roll. What's wrong? It's such a nice scene between <laughs> the two nice. of them. It is nice. It is nice. I kind of expected Chalk to have a more bitter reaction about his mother dying to save this random furless creature. But that's not how, that's not how most Wookiees are. Yeah. Chewie and Mala head for their honeymoon. Han thinks he'll probably leave before they get back. He just needs to finish the deal to offload his cargo. Durga learns that Uruk was poisoned, but he didn't die from the poison. Instead, he died from its abrupt withdrawal. He's convinced that Jabba and or Jaliak was behind it, but he has no proof. He has all the servants questioned, especially the cooks. Several die, but he finds no evidence of any of them being part of it. Zir, one of Durga's rivals, warns Durga to stop spending so much of Basadi's money. Going forward, Durga knows he'll need to spend his own money to find Uruk's killer. He is not bankrupting them, but he is spending so much money on this. Zir knows. He's like, keep doing this. I'm going to take over. Yeah, the clan's going to turn on you. And they already tried that once, so like, they would love to have another shot at it. Yeah. It takes Han a few more days to finalize the deal on his cargo. As he gets ready to leave, Chewie shows up and complains about Han leaving without him, which confuses Han. <laughs> Han says Chewie should stay with Mala, and Chewie says no, the life debt takes precedence. Mala is furious at Han for not wanting to take Chewie, so Chewie leaves with Han before Mala can rip his arms off. As they leave, Han says they'll return soon. I also really love this scene so much. Mala's basically offended that Han is insulting her husband's honor. Yeah. I I really love that Han's like, you should stay with your wife, but I also find it so fascinating that they as a culture, this, the life debt takes precedence over everything. Yeah. That would never go in our culture. No. <laughs> Boba Fett tries to get to Bria, but a live capture is much more difficult, and given her involvement with the rebels, even more so than usual. He manages to track her down at Teth, but is un- unable to get her there. Knowing that Bria is in the rebellion, Han starts paying more attention to the news. And he learns that Mon Mothma has fled imprisonment from the Empire because of what she's been saying in the Senate. And as Imperial rule tightens, more people are looking for escape, and many are turning to Elysia. And Han's like, oh, no, please stop. Don't go there. Durga has confirmation that the poison was found in Aruk's digestive tract, but he can't figure out how it got there. Then he remembers the Nala tree frogs. The tank that held them has residue from the poison. He knows that Taroenza was involved, but Durga can't kill him right away. He'll first need to train a replacement. Durga also knows that it wasn't just Taroenza and still suspects Jiliak and Jabba. So, despite so Z- actually, Zizor didn't manage to... Despite what Zizor tried, Durga found evidence, but just not who it was tied to exactly. Yeah. That's what Zizor was ultimately able to keep from him. Yeah. He still suspects it was Jiliak and Jabba, but he doesn't have a... It's pretty obvious, right? That's the rivalry. They hate each other. I mean, it is obvious, and that to some degree makes it like, are we sure it was them? Fair enough. I mean, we know it was them. But just because the way that a crime was committed makes sense for one person to have the motive, like just because everything matches doesn't necessarily mean that that person did it. Yeah. You know? They could be framed. 
they could be but like i don't know it's just this very human thing of we just want things to make sense we want to have a neat story that is Mm -hmm. tied up with a bow and as soon as any nuance enters the picture it gets really complicated and so we tend to discard that information i understand that huts are not humans but they think they're above us so they do they probably have these same problems (laughs) probably (laughs) meanwhile on elysia Teronza is hiring more guards, and these guards do are hired by him specifically, not by the huts, so they will answer to him and not to the huts. Because remember, the new hut overlord is a bumbling fool. He's in charge. He knows he'll be breaking free from Nalhut soon enough, and he wants guards who are paid by and loyal to him. So he is thinking ahead. Yeah, making moves. He's a interesting villain. This one. Han and Sala have taken to racing each other on their jobs. Han usually wins, which leads to Sala taking more and more risks. One time, she tries a micro jump near the Maw, Big and no-no. it goes poorly, and her ship ends up getting pulled towards the Maw. Han and Chewie take a big risk and manage to save Sala, but not her ship. That was a bit of a rough scene. <laughs> yeah, she has to like eject from her ship, and they have to try to. <laughs> it can't remind me of Luke going to Mario's ship. Yeah. But uh, more stressful. Yeah. No force users She here. at least had a suit on, though. She did. So that helped. Over the next week, Sala is very quiet. And then she asks Han to teach her to cook, because apparently Han's a good cook, which I, that kind of makes sense, but he's been living on his own for so long. No? You nah. don't buy it? No. Like... Not a great cook, but a good enough cook. I guess. But it's not going to be, like, great food. No, it won't be great food. He's a dude in his... 20s. Yeah, like, of course it's going to be terrible food. A smuggler especially. No. I'm glad you can admit that. That men in their 20s. Oh, we eat garbage. <laughs> I still would if I could. I just can't anymore in my 30s. I mean, you can. It would just really hurt. Yes. Han can tell that she's thinking of him differently, and he's starting to get a little nervous. And she then tells him, hey, guess what, Han? I'm planning our wedding. He's like, excuse me? And he's like, do you, do you love me? And she says, sure. And of course you know that, Han. And Han's like, no, I don't think you do. Han keeps trying to tell Sala no, but she is just not listening to him. While talking with Lando, Han decides to leave and head to the corporate sector. He knows it will hurt her, but she's set a date for the following week and won't listen to him. And he feels like at this point he's out of options. Han tries to talk to her one more time, but it doesn't work. So he and Chewie leave. He sends a message to Sala and apologizes. And on their way to the corporate sector, they first stop at Kashik. You kind of had some issues with this, if I remember correctly. I mean, I don't necessarily have issues with, like, what Han does. Like, he had no, I feel like he had no choice. He tried. Yeah. And he at least sent a message, a verbal message, rather than just leaving a note. So he did more than what had happened to him. Yeah. I think my issue was with the way that Solo was characterized here. Yeah. Like. It feels weird. I, I, I kind of get it. Like, when you've got a near-death experience, things can change your perspective and whatnot. But it's it felt Weird. I just really, I would rather have her have snapped out of it at some point. Agreed. Like, like that would have. I would have been okay felt... if like she had done this initially and then changed her mind at some point. Yeah. Because she's contending with like, she's lost her livelihood. She's lost her ship. So like now she's trying to make a new life for herself. But I think if she at any point stopped and thought about it a little bit more deeply, she would realize that this is not really the life that she wants. And I just wanted, I wanted her to have that realization on her own without Han, like... Forcing it on her? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I just have an issue with the way it was written. Agreed. And 
Han going to the corporate sector, sector. This is, of course, where the Han Solo adventures take place. And this was written 15 years-ish before this book came out. Maybe even more than that, depending exactly on those dates, because I don't remember off the top of my head, but early 80s. And AC Crispin, she needed a reason for Han to go here. I don't like this as the reason, but I also don't remember if there was something about Han in those books, like leaving a woman behind. I, it's been a while since I've read them, so I don't remember if there's any detail like that. Yeah. Like if she was trying to match up or not. And if she was trying to match up, then I think it works very well. If she wasn't, then I'm like, I wish she would have found a different and better reason. Like, I think him running from Boba Fett in the previous book would have been a great reason to go to the corporate sector. Yeah, that makes more sense to me. I also, like, I'm kind of frustrated with, like, everybody in Han's life at this point, and Han himself, that, like, you can just... He could have just told her, like, I will not be there. Like, you can make all of these plans. I will not be meeting you at the altar. Like, I feel like he could have said it a little bit more strongly. And everyone who's just allowing her to go along with that, I did wish, like, she had a friend who would, like, shake her yeah, a little bit. <laughs> agreed. I did like that at one point, Han compared her to acting like a Winnie to Chewie. And Chewie's yeah. like, oh, I get it now. So, for the next section of the book, because Han is in the corporate sector and the story has already been told, we're actually going to see several perspectives from other characters in Han's life. And Han is going to be essentially absent for the next part of the book. Which was weird. <laughs> How did you feel about that? The pacing is just so strange. It is. In this book. It is. And again, part of that's not her fault entirely, the author's fault entirely. I know. And like she did create these very interesting characters to follow instead. Yeah. Like it's not just. I, I, I appreciate it's not he went there and then came back a year later. We actually see what's going on with Jabba, with Bria, with others. I really like that. But then when he does come back, I'm like, wait, why do I care about this guy now? <laughs> I have a goldfish memory, I guess. Like, uh, I mean, he leaves, and so I get more invested in what's going on without him, and then he comes back, and I'm like, what am, what am I supposed to do with this? And also, if you want, as a fun thing to do, in these chapters, there are brief interludes where it will say, Han just did X. That's the point you put this book down, and you pick up the Hauntal Adventure book and read Hauntal at Star's End. Han Solo and The Lost Legacy? I forget what those are called. But you read them as you get to these interludes. It's a fun thing to do, I found. That would make me so crazy. <laughs> I think we've talked about before. Yeah. Jabba says that the Desilogic clan would bankrupt in 44 years. And Juliet says things will turn around by then. Jabba is worried Durga will try to take over the entire spice trade, though. And it's like, this is bad. Pay attention. And she's like, no. I have a baby. Jabba also misses Han. And he knows Han would never allow himself to be boarded and his cargo impounded as has happened to other smugglers recently. That's what you think! Yeah. Jabba also says that Mon Mothma has united three resistance groups under the Corellian Treaty. He wonders if there is money to be made with the rebels. But Jiliak advises staying out of galactic politics. So I actually kind of like we learn about the formation of the rebellion through different perspectives in this book, through Han paying more attention, through Jabba and Juliak talking about what's going on in the galaxy. I really like that aspect. The Corellian Treaty is name-dropped. Yes. One of the biggest moments in EU history. Yeah. Bella Bliss, Han Mothma, one other person whose name I never remember. Uh, Bale. Bale. I sh- really should remember. Yeah. <laughs> Granted, this is a very different Bale than the one we know from the prequel yeah. trilogy and onward. Jabba and Juliet call for a meeting of the Hut clans and demand that the Basadi clan be censored. They haven't paid their fair share after the Battle of Narshada the way the rest of the Hut clans have. 
A vote is taken, and unsurprisingly, it goes against the Basadi by a count of 47 to 1. The Basadi clan will pay 1 million credits divided among the other clans. Bria is now in command of the ship Retribution, and it's her fifth mission while in charge. Her squad is called the Red Hand. They are going to free 200 slaves who are on their way to Kessel after leaving Elysia. Bria thinks about how the rebellion has formed with Mon Mothma in the lead. Mon Mothma went to several resistance groups and united three of the biggest ones, Corellia, Alderaan, and Chandrilla. Mon Mothma told Bria that she was one of the reasons why Bale changed his mind because of what Bria had told her. And again, I love that. Yeah. Dano Hicks believes he has developed a cure for the exaltation addiction. The attack goes well and the slaves are rescued, and a month later the treatment is working and some of the freed slaves join the rebellion. Love that. I do like that it's treated as like this commentary on addiction yeah. and withdrawal. Even though it's not a substance, it can still be addictive. Yeah. It's again, this series very progressive for the nineties. Great it's late nineties, but still. I think the cure is not just like it's not just like a magical pill. It's no. like that in combination with like therapy. <laughs> yeah. Bree suggests the rebellion's next target should be Elysia and free the eight thousand slaves there. Because, you know, that's 8,000 potential recruits, which would swell the Rebellion's ranks pretty considerably at this point in time. It's still a very small organization. There is something about this that feels icky to me, though. <laughs> well, I mean, they're not all going to join. Yeah. And... It feels almost predatory, though, to save them and then, well, like, I, offer that they join the Rebellion. I think for Bria, I think she's saying it this way because she thinks there's a better, better chance of it being approved. But I think to her, the important thing is getting the slaves out of there. Yeah. But she's told no. They don't have the troops to mount such an assault. She tries to convince her superior, and he says he'll think about it. Because even if they don't get, this, get the recruits, it still would be a blow against the Empire, lack of slaves, and just the right thing to do, which isn't that what they're trying to do? We then reach the first interlude. Han is in the corporate sector, and after Star's End, Doc has upgraded the Falcon even more. She's even faster now. So this is where you would read Han's at Star's End, right before this interlude. Boba Fett is in disguise and follows Bria onto the Queen of the Empire luxury cruise ship. I just want to point out real fast. This is well before Episode 2 is released. This is not Boba Fett as we know him to be in no. terms of looks. We, I don't think he's ever actually described, but it feels different than Tomorrow Morrison. Yeah. Turns out Lando is on board too. He sees Bria and asks her to dance. And as they talk, he says he's only ever heard of one other Bria. They realize that they both know Han. <laughs> He's like, pretty girl, dance. This is Han's brand. Dang it! <laughs> what happenstance? After dancing for a while, Lando asks her to meet somewhere more private. And she agrees and tells him to come to her room in 30 minutes. So he goes off to find wine and flowers, having a very different idea of what's about to happen. She wants to talk about Han. <laughs> but she gets to her room and Fett knocks her out and kills the other rebels that were with her. So, uh... This is not going the way that either of them had nope. planned. Bria and Fett talk for a while, and Bria thinks he has some kind of honor or code. She asks him to do something for her if she dies to tell her dad that she is dead. He surprises her by agreeing to her request. Basically, she's like, I contact him once every several months, maybe a year or so. I don't want him to be waiting around and nothing to arrive. And never to know. Yeah, I like that. Lando then shows up, and Fett says, I'm not here for you cooperate and you're going to live. And remember, the last time they saw each other, Lando stabbed Fett with a mic-controlled rug and had him fly off. Fett's like, dang it! But I'm here for a job. 
Fett then tells Bria that if she promises to not alert anyone, Lando will be left tied up but alive. Which is... That's generous of him. Yeah. They are interrupted as the ship is dragged out of hyperspace. Fett tries to get them off the ship, but they run into pirates who are led by Captain Renthal, one of Lando's former girlfriends. <laughs> Fett will happily give her Lando if he can leave with Bria. Lando says Renthal can't let Fett take Bria. He says this is Han's girlfriend and Renthal owes him for what he did at the Battle of Narshada. Captain Renthal offers to pay Fett to leave peacefully, and he agrees. He knows a fight will get Bria killed, and his priority is live capture. Yeah, Renthal was at the Battle of Narshada, and Han's actions basically helped save her and her crew. I think even, like, because remember, Han's ship at the time was called the Bria. Captain Renthal's like, oh, this is that Bria. <laughs> this is the Bria. <laughs> Bria is actually on her way to Narshada, and plans to go to Nalhada from there. And she asks Lando if Han is still there. But he says Han has left for the corporate sector about a year ago. So we've got some time passing. She gets to Nalhada and meets with Juliak and Jabba. And she wants Juliak to help the rebels attack Elysia. Juliak doesn't want to, but Jabba is interested. Juliak tells him it's best to stay out of the war. This would help the rebels. She declines Bria's offer. Bria sees Lando again. He now knows that she's a rebel. He says he won't turn her in. And she says he should join. He'd be an officer in no time. He asks when she'll have a life, and she says when the Empire is defeated. They talk about Han, and she says he's the only one for her. And also while talking, Lana mentions how good of pilots smugglers have to be to just, you know, survive in this job. We then get to the third interlude. We didn't mention the second interlude. No. Han and Chewie go back to Kashik after leaving the corporate sector. Chewie is now a father. Lumpy! Oh, God. <laughs> Lumpawaru. Also Waru. Durga has not been able to establish a firm link between Aruk's death and Terowenza or Jiliak. He calls Zizor and takes him up on Black Sun's offer to help. Zizor says he'll help, but doesn't want money. He wants the plans for Nalhada's planetary defenses. Durga agrees. Bad choice. Yeah. After the call, Zizor tells Guri to take the data to Durga after waiting a little while. He also instructs her to assist Durga with any fighting if needed, but to make sure that Jabba lives. He can still be useful. So, Zizor had the information the entire time, but of course, he's going to share it out of the good of his heart. He has no. to just wait. He doesn't have good in his heart. I like he's like, Guri, just wait 100 hours and then go give it to him to, yeah. look, to make it look like we were looking for a while. Yeah. Han and Chewie get back to Narshada, and Lando tells Han about Bria's visit. Han also goes to see Jabba, and Jabba is very happy to see him. They discuss Bria's proposal, and Han thinks, you know, it could work, because he doesn't know about the new guards Terowenza has hired. He thinks about what it used to be. He's like, yeah, it's really not that bad. We could totally take him. <laughs> Durga has found out there are female Talanda Till on Elysia, and he's not happy about this. He scolds Kibik, the hut in charge, and tells him to get them back to Nalhada. Kibik tells Terowenza to get them off the planet, and Terowenza says no, and then kills Kibik because he is done taking orders from anyone. <laughs> Especially this idiot. Yeah. Terowenza then calls Durga back and says terrorists, led by Bria Theron, attacked, and Kibik has died. Durga, of course, knows this is a lie, but he has no proof. He's like, oh, I'm so sorry. Gary gives Durga proof of how Jiliak and Terowenza killed Aruk. Durga goes to see Jiliak and challenges her. They fight. Han, Chewie, and Jabba hear the noise and go to investigate. Guri stops them from interfering, and she says that Durga has challenged Jiliak under the old law. Jabba doesn't go in and stops guards from going in as well. He dismisses Han. This is no place for a human. 
So interesting. He's yeah. so like he's so patriarchal towards Han. Yeah. I think like you said before, it's like almost like a pet. Yeah. He's like so solicitous. Durga kills Juliak and then leaves. Jabba goes to see his aunt's body and he sees the baby hut. He's like, no one's here. And just kind of squishes it. Like, I'm done with this thing. Yeah, I'm so tired of this baby. <laughs> it's dark, man. It really is. It's dark. <laughs> Durga then asks for military aid from Zizor to help with Alicia. Given how the guards are likely loyal to Terranza, he knows he'll need the help to take it over again. He'll even give a percentage of Elysian profits as payment to Black Sun. Jabba calls Bria. He wants to talk about Elysia. Han is sitting at a tavern, and Bria sits down next to him. She asks to talk, and he feels conflicted, but agrees. He asks why she came back after leaving him. She's sorry, but she had to. He wouldn't have made it to the Academy otherwise. She's proud of him for freeing a Wookiee slave, though, even though it got him kicked out. <laughs> she says she needs his help for the assault on Alicia. So all roads are very quickly leading to Alicia. They need experienced pilots for the mission, and there are none better than him. He'll get Spice and some of the treasure as payments. Han doesn't want to do this and just insults her instead. And then just walks away from her and it feels good. And I get it. Yeah. I get it. Like, she she broke his heart. She left his life for, I don't know, it's been like 10 years. Yeah. It's been a long time. And then comes back in and has the gall to be like, I'm sorry what I did, but I need need you to recruit all of your smuggler friends to help me with this. With my vendetta. And like, Hans had been with other people, obviously, but none of them have been Bria to him. Yeah. Like, she's his first true love, and she broke his heart yeah. completely and utterly. Yeah, I don't blame him. No. He does have trouble sleeping that night because he is a good person. And I also Secretly. love this. Like, <laughs> again, we go back to like, he's got this hard exterior, but inside he's a soft cinnamon <laughs> And like, I get the initial anger, but I also love that it just. He doesn't like how he acted, and it bothers him. Yeah. So he decides to go see Bria, and he says, I was sore about the way you dumped me. I had to get that out of my system, maybe. He wants in, and he decides that he'll give the others her proposition. But this is just business, he says, and she agrees. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Did you believe that for a second? No. <laughs> They're both still so, like, raw about it, even though it happened ten years ago. Like... In uh, some situations, you move on from a person, and like ten years later, it's like whatever, yeah, whatever. Like as Bria recently told Lando, Han's the only one for me. Yeah, and I think when she says that, she means like he was the only one for me, and I will just have like it's not like she thinks she'll go- get back with him. Like she thinks that that's she's, a thing of fantasy. She's married to the rebellion. Yeah, and until that's over with, unless Han joins her, this is it. And even if he does join her, the rebellion will always be her priority. Like, if she has to pick, <laughs> which we will see. Spoilers! <laughs> Durga asks Fett to kill Terowenza, and he agrees. Durga makes this a priority bounty, so Fett will ignore all other targets, and it will cost Durga 300,000 credits. Durga asks for Fett to bring him Terowenza's horn as proof. So, another party heading to Alicia. <laughs> yeah. All roads lead to Alicia. Han and Bria catch up on each other's lives over the past 10 years. And Han helps recruit other smugglers for the mission, and several do sign up. Han also meets Bria's crew, and among them is one Jalus Nebel, the other pilot from Elysia, who we met in the Paradise Snare we haven't seen since then. Han fits in so nicely with the rebel group, and Bria realizes that she's happy and hopes Han will join the rebellion 
full time out for this mission. I feel like this is the first time she starts actually sort of deluding herself actively rather than like before it was all fantasy for her and she knew it was fantasy. And now I feel like she's lying to herself. <laughs> this kind of reminds me actually of Supernatural. Do you remember what in one of the early seasons when Sam and Dean purposely get arrested and go to jail? Uh-huh. And how well they fit it among the prison population. And Sam's like, who knows how well we fit it among, among these guys? That's like Han here with the rebellion. Wow. Okay. I had totally forgotten about that plot line. And to be honest, I only remember it very vaguely. <laughs> Some Tagorians will join the assault, including Merg and Morav. Yay. Yay. Han and Bria go to pick them up from Tagoria, and they are given a room to share. The Tagorians have clearly not realized that these two have been apart for some time, so awkward. A little bit. At first, they flip a coin to see who gets the bed, but predictably, they end up in the bed together because we all know how the room sharing with one bed trope goes. Yep. It's just inevitable. It's like magnets. <laughs> <laughs> and it, w- it would happen regardless, but this was the, the final straw. Yeah. The next day, Han thinks that after the attack, they'll both leave and settle down somewhere together. They'll have made enough to retire. Aww. And now Han is deluding himself. Yeah. It's so unfortunate. Oh, well. Like, there's a part of the two of them that works so well together. And there's a part of the two of them that is so incompatible with each other. They've just, like, in... They already had this incompatibility problem way back in Paradise Snare. They were working on it. But it was it was there. I, I think. But I in the ten years since, both of them have crystallized their personalities too much, and yeah. they no longer there's no room to work on it. They ten, just, ten years ago, I think they could have worked it out. Yeah, but today, no. Chewie and Merg meet, and Merg says any friend of Hans is a friend of Merg's. Lando and Jarek also both join the attack as well. The night before the battle, Han and Bria promise they'll be together forever. Of course, that means different things to each of them, and they're not talking about what it means for each of them. They don't, yeah, they, like, they discuss the they broad make a lot of ideas and not the specifics, and that's the problem. Yep. You gotta talk about the specifics, people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> After Han has gone to bed, Bria gets a call from her commanding officer. She's told the Empire has something big underway, something that could totally crush the Rebellion. So her mission is even more critical now, and she has to take everything she can for the Rebellion. Meaning, she shouldn't pay the people that she's recruited to help her with this mission. She agrees, and knows that Han will understand not getting any treasure or spice. Oh, honey. Oh, honey. You have made up a fictional version of this man in the ten years since you've been apart. There is a time when Han will be okay with us. But it's not now. No. That time is ten years ago. <laughs> or ten years in the future. Yeah. <laughs> Jabba has assassins take out the Talanta Till on Elysia, which is the first part of the attack. Terwenza, however, does survive the assassination attempt. And as rebels and smuggler ships get to Elysia, turbo lasers open fire on them, and Nebel is sadly killed. Aww. The ships that survive land and an assault team goes to take out the turbo laser. Which was not supposed to be there. Yeah. Han's like, what's going on? We've heard of no turbo laser. Why didn't they do any advanced scouting? Just to double check. Well, I think, like, because the Bria's team led their raid a few years ago on Elysia, so I think they were using that as recent intel as well. Like, a it few years ago is not recent intel. No, but it's much more than 10 years ago. Yeah. But. Yeah. Han and Chewie go with Bria to Colony 1 and encounter heavier than expected resistance. 
However, soon all of the colonies has been, have been taken care of, but Jarek is hurt and won't survive. He tells Han that he's not actually a Solo, and Han tells him he earned that name a long time ago. Mrav is also hurt, but she will live. That scene with Jarek is really sweet also. That was depressing. Yeah. That hurt my feelings. Like, Jarek has been All a, three of them. a pretty minor character in this series. Yeah, but you can't help but feel for the kid. Yeah. Like, like he's just, he's trying to live up to his hero. Yeah. Or he's trying to, like, find a place to belong. Yeah. And he did that by lying. But, like, everybody knew. Yeah. He was the only one who didn't know <laughs> that everybody knew. The pilgrims are predictably ready to riot and do not want to leave. So Bria orders them stunned, and Han is somewhat shocked by Bria's ruthlessness. Like, this is a side of her he has never seen. Yeah. Like, he remembers this not innocent girl, but this very kind and caring person who didn't have that edge to her. A little bit naive. Yeah. Like, she, I think she shot someone for the first time in their escape, and, like, that was kind of, like, a big deal for her, and now she's just ordering innocent people stunned. Not killed, but still, pink stun is not fun. No, and I can't imagine that it's good for you. I think once or twice is probably not going to have long-term effects, but if you do it constantly, probably not. Han looks for Lando, and when he sees him, he's about to go over, but Bria stops him. Something feels weird to Han. He sees Lando and the other smugglers just sort of standing there across the way. And then Han notices that the rebels have their weapons aimed at Lando and the rest. Han asks what's going on. Bria says they won't be harmed, but the rebellion needs everything. The smugglers glare at Han, and he realizes they think he was in on it. He promises himself that he'll make it up to Lando. Oof, that's rough. This is only the first part of the betrayal, and this is such a rough part. Yeah. They get to the treasure room, and Terowenza is waiting for them. He's about to kill Han, but Boba Fett shows up and kills Terowenza instead. <laughs> he says Terowenza is a party bounty. I'm not here for e- any of you. Cuts off Terowenza's horn and just leaves. And Han and Bria are like, what just happened? I love how Boba Fett through these books is just like wandering through the scenery. He is the main character in his own life. Yeah, it's great. And then he's just like, I'm not here for you and leaves. <laughs> it's pretty funny. I'm not here for Lando earlier. I'm not here for Han and Bria right now. Yeah. I'm busy. Goodbye. He's very much a businessman. And I, I like this interpretation and read of Boba Fett a lot. Yeah. I think it works pretty well with what we see in the prequels. And with what we see in the original trilogy. Yeah. As the other rebels come in, Bria tells Han they need to talk. She has her blaster drawn on him and Chewie. Han asks what she's doing, and she says the Resistance needs it all. She wants him to come with her and fight the Empire together. They'll make a great team. Han says he was a fool to trust her. He brings out the flimsy she wrote goodbye on ten years ago. He still has it with him. still has it, and he slowly and deliberately rips it up. And then he tells her, if I ever see you again in this life, I'll shoot you on sight. Which is fair. Yeah. Bria says she's sorry and that she'll always love him and leaves. But not as much as the cause, Bria. Child me was just so heartbroken when I first read this. (laughs) Oh my god. Like, we know Han and Bria cannot be together. Which means one of two things has to happen. She has to die. Or... They have to break up so terribly they can. They will the breakup has to be so thorough. The ground has to be salted. <laughs> I, I thought they were going to go with death. So I was surprised when this happened. They kind of do end up doing both. They do. But we'll get to that. So, I, But I was really surprised by this. And I was so sad. Yeah, it, it is sad. I, I feel like the first time I read this. Okay, I feel like part of the problem is I came to this whole thing as an adult. Mm-hmm. Right? 
And so the hormones of the teenagers that they had 10 years ago didn't really... Yeah. I mean, I do feel like they have a, a good connection, and it is sad. But from the moment she was introduced, I was like, well, this woman is just going to have to get out yeah, of the way. We like, <laughs> we know that. So I don't think I ever allowed myself to get, like, very attached to their relationship. I think the parts that I got attached to were, like, I genuinely like Bria as a character. Yeah. I think she's really interesting. And... You feel for Han's, like, emotional development. I feel like Crispin did a really good job of showing us why he is the way he is by the time we meet him Yeah, in A New Hope. Like, uh, this is the moment where it feels like that hard exterior is who he really is, and that soft seminal inside is gone almost. Yeah. Like, we, we know it's there, but it takes a long time and a lot for it to get through to that. The entirety of A New Hope, essentially. And it makes you reframe, too... Like, throughout episode four and five, Han has this push-pull between staying with the Rebellion and dealing with the Jabba problem, right? And also just Leia. And His feelings towards her. And Leia. I was getting to that. Oh, okay. Let me monologue. <laughs> <laughs> you always tell me not to let people monologue. <laughs> Do I? In stories. <laughs> Well, I'm not in a story. It's my life. Okay. I'm going to say my opinions on the podcast that I do. <laughs> How about that? Okay. It just makes me think of that scene in, when they're in Cloud City in Empire. And Leia tells Han, and then you'll soon be gone. Like, once he's saying, like, we're going to get the, the ship fixed and we'll be out of here. We won't have to deal with Lando anymore. Like, we'll be gone. And she says, and you'll be gone. And there's this hesitation that now makes me think of this and how he must be, I mean, not not when thinking about acting choices at the time, but you can imagine Han thinking of like what happened with Bria. Yeah, absolutely. um, And how he's being put in a situation again to choose between like his own livelihood and this cause that he can see the merits of, but he still thinks is doomed. <laughs> like he hasn't yet come to the place where he's like accepting. Maybe it is doomed, but I want to do it anyway. He's just not there yet. <laughs> anyway, I like, I like thinking about that connection. Yeah. That does it for me. After the rebels leave Han and Chewie look around and see if they can find anything that the rebels missed. And they find a few small treasures. And then Chewie finds several children because apparently some of the slaves here had, procreated their time here even though most of them don't have the like spare energy yeah there was actually they talked about this earlier in one of the books at some point they start adding stuff to food to make them like even less interested in that kind of stuff yeah like this was more the these kids are relatively old so this is from the earlier days of the colony yeah before they thought about like putting sterilization stuff in the water yeah and so even though hansel doesn't love it they do take the children off of elysia Durga sees Elysia after the attack. It's in total shambles. He knows that he still owes Black Sun, and he'll probably have to work for them. He'll try to become a Vigo, one of Zizor's lieutenants, and from there he'll try to challenge Zizor himself someday. And at this point I'm like, Durga, you think very highly of yourself for someone who has done very poorly. And who will die in Darksaber. <laughs> yeah, and who will die humiliatingly in Darksaber. Yeah. So again, this is Crispin connecting to Darksaber, connecting to Shadows of the Empire, connecting to a lot of other different stories and... That's one of her great strengths in this trilogy. Jabba calls Han and tells him he needs to pick up spice on Kessel and take it to Tatooine. 
The kids are still on board the ship, and 12 hours later, the Spice joins them. Because they have not had time to drop these kids off. As they approach the Maw, there's an Imperial ship on their tail. They make it across, but there are more Imperial ships waiting for them on the other side. So Han's like, okay, we're going to dump the Spice, but tag it, and come back for it. So they just dump the Spice. The Falcon is boarded, and nothing is found. The Falcon is then escorted to Corellia to drop the children off. Han and Chewie go back to look for the spice, but they can't find it, and there are Imperial ships waiting for them. To escape, the Falcon goes closer to the Maw than any sane person would, and they get away and set a new record, not just for speed, but distance too. (laughs) Dang it, Lucas, making things complicated. (laughs) Jabba is predictably not happy. He tells Han to deliver the spice or credit equivalent in 10 days or else. So Han's like, oh, I'm in trouble. So he goes to Narshadal looking for help. And he goes to Lando trying to explain what happened and trying to get a loan. And Lando promptly punches Han because he blames Han for everything and thinks that Han betrayed him. Lando then tells Han, never come near me again. And this, of course, is tying directly into Empire. This is what Lando's talking about. Yeah, like... As a kid, I always thought it was the ship. Now it was this. Except, the weird thing about this whole thing is that I was surprised that Han didn't immediately get just, like, absolutely eviscerated the second he set foot on Nar Shaddaa, Because there are other people who were betrayed, too. The ones that were with Bria's group were the ones betrayed. The ones with the other colonies still got paid for where they were. Mm. So not everyone hates Han right now. It's just the ones that were with Bria specifically. I was still surprised because I feel like the ones who were with... Bria's team were the ones that Han was closer to. Yeah. So I expected more ire. But it felt like we were trying to wrap things up at this point, I guess. Bria is in a fight for her life on Top Rara. She knew that she probably wouldn't survive this mission, but she volunteered anyway. She and Red Hand Squadron have seized the comm center. Their techs transmitted stolen plans to a ship, the Tantive Four, but there's a Star Destroyer chasing it. She has no idea if the ship made it or not. She thinks goodbye, Han, as she makes her final stand. I'm going to cry. <laughs> there, there. Like, this is sad. Like, you didn't, have to, you didn't have to murder her. <laughs> I love Bria. She's one of my favorite characters, I think, from the 90s. And she has a good arc. She has a great arc. And, and a lot of this has made its way into new canon with the story of Jin Erso. It's very different, but they clearly pulled elements of Bria's life like into A spiritual Jin. success. Yeah, exactly. Kind of. And I love this story. I love Rogue One. They both do a great job of explaining how Leia got the plans. Yeah, who sacrificed for the plans. Yeah. Han is on Tatooine to request more time from Jabba, but Jabba isn't answering any of Han's calls. Han does run into Greedo at Docking by 94, and he also sees Dash Randar playing a little Spock, and he joins him. A Chadra fan named Kabe comes up to Han and says someone outside wants to talk with him. Kabe! Han goes outside thinking it's from Jabba, but it's Boba Fett. Fett tells Han he's not here about Bounty. (laughs) He made a promise. He tells Han that Bria is dead. He figures Han can tell her father, and Han agrees to do so. Han wonders if Bria thought of him and hopes her death was quick and painless. He sends a message to Bria's father. Han tells him she died bravely and that he should be proud of her. He also says she didn't want her father to wonder about her fate. The next day, there are lots of stormtroopers out, and Han wonders why. He walks into the cantina. Chewie is excited. They've got a charter from an old guy in Jawa robes and a kid in a moisture farmer's outfit. And Han goes over to meet them. Ending the story. So what do you think about both this book and the trilogy as a whole? 
like I've kind of complained about, I think, in the second one in this trilogy, I feel like this one lacked focus. Yeah, I, I think this one, though, was less the author's fault and more fitting in other stories, the Hansel Adventures primarily. Yeah, I kind of just wish we had skipped, though, the like front matter and gotten to where we are in the timeline when Han is gone and stuff is ramping up for the Rebellion. Kind of like how you wanted just to get to the Battle of Narchanoth faster in the last book. Yeah. Basically, like, the last half of each of these books are fantastic. The first half aren't bad, but aren't necessarily as integral. It's very, like, slice of life. Like, this is what everyone is doing right now. Which is, is fun to see to an extent, but... I think it was just too much. Yeah. And this is a, a fairly... I mean, not like super long. It's paperback, like standard market paperback that is almost 400 pages. So pretty long. Yeah. Um, and I feel like we could have expanded a bit on the Elysia operation, like done a little bit more detailed front footwork for it and cut the stuff at the beginning of this book. And it would have felt more focused and like there was more of a goal. Like we, we skipped entirely Hans time three. Empire. We could have skipped him winning the Falcon, I feel like. Yeah. Like, since it ultimately is not the, the wedge has driven between him and Lando, like, why do we Yeah. Why do we need to belabor the point? But like I've said earlier, I've always been a big fan of the series, and as we've done many times, Han has often taken a backseat in several stories in 90DU, so it's nice to see something that just focuses on him so much. Though even here... He just goes off to the corporate sector, and we just hear from a bunch of other people for a while. But if you read those stories, then... Sure. I've also always thought the ending of this series was fantastic. And to me, what a good prequel will do is two things. One, it will tie into the existing stories. And this one ties into so many of the stories really well. But two, it makes you want to go and watch A New Hope right away. It makes you want to go watch the next story that already exists right away. Just like Rogue One does for me. When I finish this, I want to watch New Hope. <laughs> And to me, that's the sign of a very good prequel that does that. I think as a whole, I still really like this trilogy. I do feel like it's too meandering. I feel like it's not very focused. But I like the overall arc for Han, like emotionally, character-wise, etc. I like how he starts off as like, like kind of a baby criminal. Yeah. And he doesn't like think of himself as a criminal when he's flying Spice for Elysia, which is hilarious to me. I really see, like, I see his development. Yeah. I I can, this version of the character transitions for me seamlessly into the New Hope version. Absolutely. There's no question in my mind of that. And in that way, this trilogy really succeeds. If that is its only goal, that is what it succeeds in doing for me. Bria Theron is a fascinating and tragic character. I've always thought that things had gone slightly differently in the universe, that she and Han could have worked long-term. I love watching her journey from slave to rebel hero, but we also know how the story has to end, which is, it's heartbreaking. First, that Han has to walk away, and then the double punch of she dies as well. But I love that she dies getting the Death Star plans to Leia. That just feels so right to me. I like the additional detail, too, that it's not actually just slave to rebel hero. It's like princess in a tower to slave yeah, to rebel that's hero a good point. like her she was vulnerable to this elysia operation because of her upbringing because of her very pampered but also stifling upbringing so i like that she doesn't just go back to that yeah after 
her experience on Alicia. She doesn't run backwards. She runs forward. And I mean, girl has some self-denial about some stuff, but like, don't we all sometimes? I really feel for her. She is she is not a perfect person. No. Um, that's why we love her, right? Yeah. She's not perfect. Yeah. She she has some serious flaws, uh, but she's really trying. Yeah. And there's also always a part of me that wishes she had survived this just to see her and Leia meet someday. Yeah. That would be fun. There's actually, in the comics, Leia and Kira meet, and that's a really fun thing to see. Awkward. Yeah. I, I, I kind of wish Leia and Bria could have gotten that. Yeah. But I also understand why why they didn't it's always hard with a character like that like she seems like she's really important to the rebellion at this stage and so it doesn't really make sense that she doesn't show up in the original trilogy it's like rogue one you have to kill them you have to somehow walk them off screen for like six years in rebels you had to have ezra go off with the space well somewhere why that's why he's not there for the rebellion or like kanan is a good one too you have to somehow remove those two pieces from the board just entirely and it's hard to say, like, oh, they were with another unit doing equally important things that somehow didn't involve the Death yeah. Star. Like, and for, for I, what I do like, in, using again Rogue One's example, you hear Hera's name said, you see the ghost briefly. Like, yeah, that helps tie it in. And because the they were is, comparatively small potatoes, yeah. like it makes sense for that crew to be part of that mission, but to not be like front and center and like we because the focus is so much on han luke and leia in the original trilogy and not the rebellion at large for the most part other than a few scenes like on home one in return of the jedi i'm okay not seeing certain characters that are important early on but there are certain characters like kanan that because of luke it would be impossible to be like yeah kanan's still around yeah somewhere else in the rebellion and luke has not ever heard of him or sensed him in the forest or, or referenced him, him somehow like, like i know that kanan is not a particularly he's not he's not a skywalker in no. terms of force power like he's a, an average jedi but at some point luke and kanan's paths would have had to cross and that just they wouldn't would have, have worked with to. empire or jedi yeah oh it's just heartbreaking yeah the series returning to the han solo trilogy also, it's a fun job of referencing the Lando Calrissian adventures published years earlier, and it, of course, also includes the interludes for the Han Solo adventures. Those don't flow quite as well with the story because they're just kind of inserted in, but I really like how the author uses that time to give us a look at other characters and what they're doing while Han's gone, um, since those Han Solo stories have already been written. She can't talk about what Han's doing. Let's talk about what Jabba's doing, what Bree is doing, what the Huts are doing, what Durga's doing. I like that a lot. Three of the entities you mentioned are just huts. Yeah. Lando. What Lando's doing. <laughs> what Boba Fett's doing. Yeah, there are some fun POV sections with Boba Fett. Yeah. <laughs> so random. And also, the name, we didn't say this time, Jasta Muriel is mentioned in this book, which was his original name in the EU. And yeah. of course, that stuff, oh, George, doesn't match up. Though the, There are some stories in the EU that try and retcon that name to make it work. Just stop. Just give up. <laughs> it's okay. We didn't know. George lied to you. He changed his mind. It yeah, happens. more specifically, it's not that he lied to you. He just he didn't, didn't know. care. Yeah. He's he's a gardener, not an architect. And most of the time that works really well. I wouldn't say most of the time. I would say it's about a coin flip. All right, fair. <laughs> Which is about what you get when you just sort of like plan a bunch of stuff and you don't think about it beforehand. 
I think my biggest criticism of this series ultimately comes to how much time it covers. I love the story, I love the character arcs, I love the detail it gives, but I could have. I think it could have been even better if things hadn't been stretched out so much. I think this is my biggest. And also, like I said earlier, what made the continuity fit better? For whatever reason, I think she interpreted this assignment or was given this assignment as like you have to fill every one of these ten years. Like you have to account for whether in summary or in. Even just um, flying missions for six months. Yeah, like, you have to mention everything that happened. <laughs> yeah, that is my biggest gripe. I, I keep saying stuff about how I wish we had, like, focused on the the major conflict in each book just more tightly. Or, like, even even in Paradise Snare, which was the kind of the tightest of mm-hmm. them all. It was. There's a final 70 pages, which to me feels absolutely bananas. But also, it does so much to inform both Han and Brian where they're going to go forward from here. Because like, that's where we meet Brian's family, for example. Yeah. I guess I'm talking more about the stuff that happens sort of like after the on breakup. Coruscant? On Coruscant. Okay. Where like Garrus Strike Oh, is... that part. Okay, yes. But like, I guess the stuff with Brian's family is also kind of out of left field. I, I wish the Elysia threat had not been tied up so neatly, like as they left. Like, I wish that while they were on Coruscant, they, or, or on Corellia, that they were still kind of dodging. I mean, they were a little bit like when they tried to sell the ship, Han had to take yeah, this Yeah, but kind of then prize. it seems like it's never an issue again. <laughs> True. I mean, it certainly is, though, in the second book. Yeah. I just, it just didn't feel, you, like, race to escape from Elysia, and then there's just this sort of meandering around for yeah. a while. Tying in Han's story and development to the early days of the rebellions is an interesting choice and frankly one that I would not have made. And I think it's one that could have easily just been fumbled by a different author. But I think Crispin just does that really well in really interesting ways because of Bria and her existence. Yeah. Like I, I think if, if Bria was not as interesting as she is, that would have just not worked at all, full stop. But because of how interesting Bria is and how interesting Han and Bria's interactions with I really love seeing how Han's early life is tied in to the early days of the Rebellion in a way that you don't expect from the original trilogy, but works really well for me. It also explains even more why he's so like gung-ho about, like, I am getting out of here with this money while the money is good. Goodbye. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know how this goes. If I stick around for too long, someone's going to take this money from me. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it fits so perfectly. And then he comes back anyway. He's That same role still there. Yeah. Cheery reaches him. I feel like one of the big issues I had was whenever Han was developing relationships with new people or people that he had developed relationships with, like Mako mm-hmm. or Shugnik's. Like I feel like we skipped over. We did that development, and I feel like that's something that could have used a lot more page time. Agreed. The one that was the best was Merg. Far yeah. and away. Yeah. Mako doesn't bother so much because they at least knew each other from before. Well, but that's what I mean by like. There was a time skip. Yeah. And we didn't get to see that. Yeah. I agree. But I, I think the uh, I think the rest of the people he meets on Narshadal Bobby more than Mako does. Because at least Mako feels like there is a shared history because they see each yeah. other and instantly know each other. But yeah, the others really bother me. It, it feels like there's just a bunch of summary where it's like Han pals around with these people for three to six months and now they're all friends. <laughs> yeah, to tie into Dark Empire, New Rebellion, et cetera, et cetera. And, like, we could have gotten more into the nitty-gritty of how you meet these people and yeah. what happens to you. And, like, this does make aspects of both New Rebellion and Dark Empire sadder, but it, 
it would have been much more powerful if we'd seen much more of those relationships, like yeah. we did Han and Bria. Yeah. So that concludes our thoughts on the Han Solo trilogy. Always been one of my personal favorites. They're quick, fun reads for the most parts. Yeah. Next up, we'll be returning to Tales from Jabba's Palace with Tongue Tied, Bubo's Tale, written by Daryl F. Mallet, and you can look forward to that coming out on March 17th. And then, after that, we'll have our third anniversary episode coming out on April 4th. Wow. Hard to believe, isn't it? Yes. And then, a month from now, we'll be doing something a little bit different. On April 7th, we'll be discussing Shadows of the Empire, but not the book, the six-issue comic series. This is to spare me, I think. He's having mercy on me, because I've already read Shadows of the Empire. I read it a long time ago. It was the final book you read before we started doing the podcast. Yeah, and I don't really want to read it again. So Tom, You were fine with it, but you read it relatively. Yeah. yeah. Tom came up with this great alternative idea. Which it, sounds... it was this or play the video game, but we don't have a copy of the video game, sadly. Do we have a system that the video game would work on? No, I'm so sad about that. Well, maybe... I don't know. It might be available on the Switch if we do the Nintendo online subscription. If but I don't think our game's included on it, but that'd be the only place I can think of where it might be. Wow. What generation was it? 64. Jesus Christ. It was on 64? Yeah. I was thinking it was on PS2 or something. No. This is in the 90s, baby. <laughs> well, I was a baby, <laughs> so I don't really remember. <laughs> My first console was a GameCube. <laughs> Mine was the 64. And that... Tells you all you need to know about what generation I belong to, I guess. <laughs> thanks to Thomas for editing. And thanks to Crystal for this crazy idea. And thanks to you for listening. You can email us at tk331podcast at gmail.com. And you can follow us on Twitter slash X at tk331podcast. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend about it. Don't, Mul- tell, don't tell Harrison Ford. He, he won't like it. No, he won't like it. Multiple friends, even. And if you really feel like doing us a favor you can leave us a rating and review on the podcast reviewing platform of your choice or apple podcasts or whatever and now here it is your moment of star wars the Corellian had carefully recorded a message to ren theron it had been hard to know what to say in the end he'd settled for sir this is han solo i know you remember me i have some bad news for you sir bria is dead She died bravely, though. You can be proud of her. She didn't want you to always wonder, so she asked someone to give you the message. Sir, I'm sorry. I know she loved you. Han Solo out.